0: Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon whatever the case may be, wherever you are on this rotating globe, welcome to another live edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, where, you know, context is everything. And it used to be said, and it obviously began way back when, with Long John Nebel, who, in part, I have tried to model some aspects of this show, like the theme, which is the David Rose orchestrated version of the theme that um, uh, he used uh, when he signed on every night to his WOR radio show that went, like, for five hours. And when you're a kid, you know, living in New Jersey, and you're under the covers with a transistor radio, and... Mom doesn't want you to be up, wants you to be asleep and, you know, order and whatever. With four kids, they had to have order. And you spend a lot of the night listening under the covers to Long John Neville. And you are introduced to a panoply of absolutely amazing, astonishing things that would never happen in daylight type stuff in the middle of the night. And all those unusual anomalies, all those extraordinary reportages, all those amazing stories, up to and including, I mean, Arthur Clarke visited uh, Long John several times. Oh, my God, you got to see the videos on YouTube. He was such an egocentric prig in the beginning. And when we became friends, it was really interesting to see how he had kind of transmogrified himself into a much more interesting and and, uh, human-oriented nerd. Uh, He never lost his nerdiness. Uh, We would always have these wonderful exchanges of, you know, what he's done and what I've done. We would meet in various places around the country. Anyway, um, Long John Nebel pioneered this form of delving into the unknown, that crossover between, as, as mainstream anchors are now saying over and over and over again, with what's been happening all over the planet Particularly here um, It's uh, You know, Earth 1 versus Earth 2 Which is really interesting because they're now um, uh, Posting all Of the old fringe Shows You know, the original out of uh, Body kind of comparison to Twilight Zone by J.J. J. Abrams uh, On Fox uh, Really interesting show Delving now radically into alternative worlds parallel worlds it almost feels like and i'm going to hit it right on the head that at some point in the past some point back when uh let me pick a date uh the election of 2016 you know that november we somehow shifted timelines now, this is not the first time in my own experience with a wide variety of backgrounds and phenomenon and all that but I've had this suspicion that I've jumped some kind of a timeline. And then, of course, many years later, there came this whole thing about the Mandela effect, which is code for in some realities, <clears throat> Nelson Mandela is still alive. And in other realities like this one, he's not. Anyway, this parallel reality was developed with very, very deftly and interestingly on this, this show Fringe. So if you want to catch um, HLN and tape everything, they're rerunning from you know the first episodes now again. I think it ran five years. Very illustrative because, again, the things that we used to talk about at night, like a president single-handedly – you know, staging a vast array of treasonous activities to try to hang on to power of the ship between one administration and another. That only occurred in conversations held at like, you know, three o'clock in the morning on the subsequent um, uh, heir to Long John, which was obviously uh, Art Bell. Now, Art Bell religiously, and I use that term kind of tongue-in-cheek insisted, even though he grew up in New Jersey, like I did, that he didn't listen to Art Bell in his formative years. And that didn't go on to become the backbone of what he did in mainstream radio and setting records and all that. But his producer, Alan, oh, what was Alan's last name? Alan Corbett. Um, He admitted to listening to Long John Nebel. And since he was Art's producer, You know, it's kind of like his influences and his background definitely shaped Art into a modern version of Long John Nebel. Well, now we have this show, and I very consciously wanted to do something different when Art conned me into the idea, oh, Oglin, why don't you do a a show? That was right after uh, I had been kicked off coast, actually in that same time frame. So he offered me his network because, of course, you know that – Keith Rowland was running really Arts Network. And we were off to the races and it's been that way ever since. And here I am. you know, there are times when it's overwhelming the burden of trying to be at the edge of these phenomenon all coming together simultaneously. But there's also this incredibly gratifying feeling that we're doing something of record that will not get lost <clears throat> and someday an awful lot of people are going to be listening to what we're presenting, the guests we, we uh, invite on, the conversations we're having like tonight, where things of a stunning and stunningly important, never happened before historical nature are now not just happening in the dead of night. They're happening in broad daylight like what we discussed last week, the first time ever indictment for criminal activity of a former president of the United States. So tonight we have another litany of news and we're going to be kind of going through a awful lot of things that are hitting the fan simultaneously. And they're part of my kind of meta model that we're going through some kind of physics catharsis where Not only are the good getting better and the bad are getting worse, but that curve is increasing at an exponential rate. And things that we thought would never happen in the real world on Earth 1 are happening almost now on a daily basis on Earth 2. So have we all, or all of us who are listening tonight, have we all made this shift Is the shift individual? Is it collective? Is it civilization wide? Is it huge swaths of populations and nations on the earth? In other words, we haven't a clue how this might work, but we have an awful lot of people who are reporting this reality does not feel real. On that note, item number one, we have four more dead and 28 injured, in another gun massacre of innocents, uh, it's now happening like twice a week. We had uh, uh, Tennessee, and then we had you know, Louisville, and now we got Louisville again, and then we've got Alabama, and it goes on and on and on and on because we are the only advanced nation on the planet that has something as insidious as the Second Amendment. So we're going to talk about the Second Amendment a bit tonight. We're going to talk about, of course, the First Amendment. And we're going to talk about the Supreme Court. Item number two, Amy Klobuchar, who is a uh, sitting senator, she is on the Senate Judiciary Committee because the Democrats, of course, with their majority uh, control the committees and control the the, um, committee memberships. She is talking uh, in terms of Clarence Thomas's now disclosed lavish gifts from billionaire GOP donor um, Mr. Crow Harlan Crow that has now exceeded anything we could imagine because not only has Crow been lavishing half million dollar vacations on the uh, Thomases both the Justice of the Supreme Court and his wife but apparently they've also he also has been funneling money directly to the family uh, buying uh, Clarence's mother's house home where she is still living at the age of ninety four and I, I have such mixed feelings about this because it's nice to see that Clarence cares a lot about his mom. It's really bizarre that all he had to do to conform to the law is just admit on paper who bought the house and in that same year he admitted other gifts which are required by the rules, but not the hundred and thirty some thousand dollars for his mother's property. And on and on, and it's it's escalating. And, of course, this is a fundamental major constitutional crisis, no more, no less, alongside item number three, which is while all this is hitting the rotating kitchen appliance, we've got the $1.6 billion Dominion versus Fox News suit, the trial, which, no, it's not starting tomorrow. It was supposed to on the 17th, start tomorrow, and a few hours ago, the, uh, the uh, court announced in, in uh, Delaware that the trial has now been moved to Tuesday, April 18th, and we should get a very interesting overview of how things are going to go even in the first couple of days, but this is really an unprecedented suit based on interpretation and judgment that's what judges do, including Supreme Court justices. They judge based on incomplete evidence. They, they are supposed to objectively fill in the gaps in the law that allow existing black letter law to be fulfilled. And when you see one of the justices display such egregious aberrations and bizarre maljudgments for 20 years, two decades a generation. You begin to say, well, what is the role of the court in the, you know, uh, checks and balances system of the founders? What is the role of a wounded court where one of the members is egregiously in violation, not only of general ethics, but also of black letter law in the U.S. Code? Now, item number four, back to the Supreme Court. In the same time frame that there are all kinds of questions being asked of the court, because they have no enforcement power on their own to judge the Constitution, that depends on the executive branch and the uh, Justice Department, et cetera, et cetera, or on the legislative branch enacting new law that will conform to the Constitution that the court interprets, well, the only power the court has is the power of persuasion and credibility when most americans which they now have according to abundant polling when most americans do not believe in the objectivity of the current supreme court and its rulings like in the recent dobbs decision there is very bad news up ahead for a republic based on three equal and checking branches. Item number five, last week we uh, talked about this briefly because it's evidence again at the grassroots of uh, a lot of people not wanting to accept the status quo. And in the reddest of red states, uh, Tennessee, where two black lawmakers were thrown out of the state legislature for having the temerity to protest the death Of three children and three adults at that school in Nashville well they have now been returned through legal processes and they are fully filling out their terms as appointed legislators pending two new special elections which will be held probably sometime in the uh, in the fall so we come full circle what did the Republicans do with their cockamamie stunt all they did from the grassroots level up is make an awful lot of people all over the country and the world realize that politically where we're basically willing to expel black legislators rather than deal with the real problems raised again by item number one tonight, there needs to be substantive change. And so all of these constitutional questions and competitions and direct oppositions are coming to a head in the same time frame that where we could say last week, that was the week that was. Well, this week is almost, if not even more um, uh, determinative, primarily because it is irrevocable now that Clarence Thomas and the third branch of the United States government constituted 246 years ago is not following the rules and is at the point of crisis at several different levels. So we've assembled a panel tonight to kind of kick this around and discuss uh, all kinds of intriguing uh, details of this. I'd like to go to Marvin Jones first because Marvin Jones is our, as we've said on previous shows, he's our resident citizen historian. He served in the U.S. military, worked in intelligence, um, had secret clearances. He is now retired, yeah, right, and lives in western Massachusetts. It's his lifelong history and interest in history, however, that strongly continues. So, Marvin, let me turn to you first. How do we get into this pickle? What is unclear about the Constitution that allows a Chief Justice to, for a generation, Basically get away with riding on the largesse of a very, very politically curious right-wing donor.
1: First, let me correct something that you said. When I was on active duty, I worked in commo, communications. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Details are important. Yes, yes, yes. Now, as to how we got into uh, this situation, uh, I'm going to have to give you a little bit of background on this because this is how, uh, from my studies, uh, uh, this is a conclusion that, that I have reached. There are several factors that play into it. And the reason why we have this out-of-touch court. And in one of my articles, I I, I called it the imperial court. The reason why we have, have it goes back to two elections, the first in 2000 and the second in 2016, both of which involved having a candidate who did not have the popular vote being installed at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Now, I know that some people uh, talk about uh, the Electoral College being such a problem. And as it is being used, yes, it is. But what the Electoral College was actually set up to do, primarily two things. First, popular choice. Second, national security. Popular choice speaks for itself. The problem at the convention, and Madison uh, pointed this out in the Federalist Papers, was that they could not uh, come to one uniform rule for voting. And so the the voting as as it came out of convention was based on those who could vote for the most numerous branch of the legislature in each state. So essentially the House of Representatives in each state. And the national security aspect came in through the fact that through Madison's studies getting prepared for the convention, the one thing that stood out for the failure of the ancient republics was foreign influence. And one of the things that the uh, electors were uh, supposed to do, and Hamilton has this – well, I won't won't go into the quote, but he he was pointing out how if the electors found out that there was a problem subsequently uh, uh, to Election Day, uh, they they could, with better information, go to uh, another choice. As in, if someone had uh, been under foreign influence, Uh, because in that uh, passage by Hamilton, he talked about that—that would be the way that a foreign power would like to get its hand on uh, activity here. So I say all of that to say this: through the fact that we had uh, the Supreme Court of the United States installing. Bush the Younger in the White House, which in itself was an unconstitutional act. I know I may be stepping on a lot of people's (laughs) toes, but uh, the reason why I say that is because on, if I remember the date correctly, July 25th, 1787, James Madison got up before the convention and he reviewed all the, the various methods they had discussed about how they were going to uh, choose the executives. And when he uh, concluded – Well, when you say executive, you mean the president? The the president. Mm -hmm. Uh, When he got through with with, uh, all the different uh, methods that they had uh, considered and then the one that they chose, his conclusion was that the president is now going to be chosen by – the people. And one method that he said that we definitely, uh, 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 well, he said it was uh, 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 definitely out of the question, that, that was his story, out of the question, was that the judiciary would choose the president. Hmm. One of the things that I found very interesting during uh, 2000 uh, when the, uh, the, the, the Supreme Court made that uh, decision, Justice Breyer, if I remember correctly, was the one who pointed out that quotation by James Madison. Now, maybe it was just me, but I found it very odd that none of the self style quote, mainstream, unquote, press, and again, to me, mainstream means dealing with facts. None of them had that as an... Uh, Major headline in the Washington Post, New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Los Angeles Times. The, pro- the proper method uh, for choosing a president in a dispute is for it to go to the House of Representatives. Right. So anyway, I say all, all, all of that, and of course we all are more immediately familiar with what's happening. Well, in, in, wait, in you thousands. raised
0: this huge question. How did Bush v. Gore in the Supreme Court become law?
1: Well, be, because, again, it, it was an imperial court. They just made that uh, assumption of of power, and the elected politicians uh, let it happen. Uh, well, that, wait, that, wait. Me, I, 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 I,
0: I thought in order for the court to rule, they could not decide of themselves what they would rule on. They had to wait for a case to be presented.
1: Oh, oh Oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, that had been uh, uh, gamed out uh, back with uh, 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 Bush the Younger's, uh, I don't know what his title was, campaign manager, whatever it was. He was one of Bush's people. Uh, That that had already been gamed out by James Baker, that uh, we, we are ultimately going to get away to have this go before the court. So, but well, what you're saying
0: happened, is non-trivial because you're saying that Bush v. Gore was decided illegally under the Constitution.
1: Well, yeah. yes, that that is is my view, and I'm sure that is decidedly an unpopular view with with some. But for me, when, when I said so, help me God, I meant that, and I, I said that if I'm going to end up getting shot, stepping on a landmine or, or or strafed or bombed by an enemy fighter or, or something, I'm going to know the reason why I am doing this. So I, ha- I have uh, studied these things to the best of my ability. That is my conclusion. And so what that allowed was that Bush the Younger Got to appoint members to the Supreme Court uh, Professor Bruce Ackerman of uh, uh, yale University he had written a piece back back then in the two thousand sometime early in two thousand one uh, he He said that this set up a situation <laughs> where the the essentially appointing itself right where, where it was adding. It, was, it, knew, it knew it was going to be adding members who were favorable. So it voted uh, for, an, in, in
0: terms of the right president that would extend the court in terms of its right-wing philosophy.
1: Right, right. So so we had that, and then – So uh, that's uh, packing 2000s. the court
0: from within the court with an unconstitutional move because you know, before Trump, this should have gone, you're saying, to the House of Representatives back in 2000.
1: Yes, yes. 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 And, and if, if it had I'm sorry.
0: If it mm-hmm. had, I believe the Democrats had the majority of congressional districts, which is the way that decision is 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 made in the House. And
1: Well, in in the House for a presidential election, uh the election is determined by delegation. So each state's delegation right. would would Meet, and it has to be, uh, of course, a – But unlike, unlike
0: the Trump era where Republicans dominated Democrats by two or three uh, districts, the Democrats in 2000, I think, dominated the House in terms of district. So we would have had Gore.
1: Yeah, most likely because even a, a, a Republican representative in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, Connie Morella oh. – even though she was a, even though she was a Republican, she had had made the statement that she would uh, uh, vote for, of course, the, the one who had gotten the majority of the vote in in her state, which was, uh, of course was uh, well the then Vice President Al Gore. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, what a tangled
0: web! Because this, of course, then culminates mm-hmm. with Trump's election again mm-hmm. with this uh, basically gerrymandered Electoral College. And bingo!
1: Now we're on Earth too. And also, and also, the very foreign influence that Hamilton was originally concerned with, right? And that uh, Hamilton seconded uh, his his motion in the Federalist Papers, right?
0: You know, the Marvin. Motion. Though I, 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 you know, like all generals, and we've got a couple of minutes at the bottom of the hour here. All generals, you know, they say the cliche is they they fight the last war. I'm not so much certain that the Russians had all that much influence. I think this is a homegrown 30% problem, which has been growing like a cancer in the Republic for decades, because some people justifiably have felt put down, ignored, you know, exploited, everything you can imagine at the bottom of society. And they have legitimate grievances about government and their fair share and their, you know, uh, feeling respected and all of that. And they chose, because in part they were manipulated into choosing the wrong guy to be their savior, their, you know, knight on the white horse. But their, mm-hmm. but their, their yearning for that kind of redress of grievances goes all the way back. To Jefferson, it just was never acknowledged, even by the Democrats. Okay. Big silence.
1: Okay, just as well, we're at the bottom of the hour. I was trying to give you the break for the – to give you the chance to pass a (laughs) Well, we're at the bottom of the hour, so I'll tell you what. I'd like to
2: respond to that. Yeah,
0: by all – when when we come back, okay. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and what we're doing – uh, is uh, I think we're doing it properly here. Is uh, we're we're talking tonight about the all the major crises hitting the constitutional fan, who are I'm in fact uh, you know causing parallel lines of confusion and even a very fundamental distrust of the validity of the decisions of the current court which has only been exacerbated now by, by uh, you know, really bizarre um, activities on the part of one of the justices. So, okay, my switches here do not seem to be functioning properly. Let's see, why is this not working? This is so bizarre. Okay, well, well, oh dear. All right. I'll tell you what, we're going to go directly to our promo. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We, in a very short order, will return.
3: Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of Midnight.com
4: i get Adams to write I don't know he had a funny look on his face. He
3: always does. All right, gentlemen. Let's get on with it. Which of us will write our Declaration of Independence? Mr.
4: Adams, I say you
3: should write it. To your legal mind and brilliance we defer. Is that so? Well then, I'm the one to do it. They'll run their quill pens through it. I'm obnoxious and dislike you know that, sir. Yes, I know. But I say you should write it, Franklin. Yes, you. Hell no. Yes, you, Doctor Franklin. You. But, you. But, you.
0: And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night. We seem to be having some problems with one of the computers, of course. So anyway, Marvin, um, I had to interrupt. Go ahead. Oh, um, well, I was hoping to make. <laughs> oh, Barbara, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, yes, you're right. Let Barbara. Come. Yeah, let, well, let me give Barbara the proper intro, which means I have to switch screens. Okay.
2: I mean, you don't remember it after
0: all this time. There's too much. <laughs> this, we need to reduce these to just a couple, three lines. One is she was a former senior policy advisor in the Reagan White House. She has a first degree in paranormal activities, which I wish were called hyperdimensional. And she was a member of the Naval War College in Annapolis, writing for many, many years and has all kinds of interstitial information, which is why she's on the other side of midnight so often. And she has something appropriate for this. Barbara, go for it.
2: Uh, yeah, let me just correct that a little bit. That was the Naval Postgraduate School, not the Naval War College. Okay. Um, See, I'm, so- I'm
0: I'm, I'm so far batting zero tonight. <laughs>
2: it's
0: okay. this is not good.
2: Marvin and I are going to correct your intros, that's all right. Okay, well, seeing as I was in the White House and um, in pretty high-level positions, also in the Justice Department, I have a kind of a unique uh, perspective on this. First off, uh, in my opinion also, I'd be interested to hear uh, our attorney on the call here, Mick Harrison, to also answer this. But it's my opinion, having read it, that Bush Gore was, in fact... Um, decided illegally that it should never have been taken to the court. I don't believe it's the case that if it had gone to the House, if I believe it should have, that the Democrats would have necessarily won. I'm, I don't believe so, but that needs to be checked. Um, probably the most interesting thing um, about Bush v. Gore is that it was argued by, I can't remember his first name at the moment, but Olson, um, who was who became uh, Bush and Cheney's solicitor general, who argued before the Supreme Court in those cases. And he actually, before uh, the election was decided by the Supreme Court, he argued Bush v. Gore on, of course, the Bush side to the Supreme Court. Now, the most important thing about Bush v. Gore, besides having been, in my opinion, should never have been argued. And by the way, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, whom I knew, um, in fact, I, I escorted her into the White House for her for her interview with Ronald Reagan, after which she was chosen to be as her Supreme Court nominee and, of course, went on the court. Um, Sandra Day O'Connor asked her – she unfortunately voted um, – for Bush, the Bush side and Bush Gore, And later, she went public saying that she had made a terrible mistake, a terrible mistake. And you can read about her reasons for saying so, which were legal reasons. Um, but the most important thing to me about Bush Vigore is that when Bush and Cheney took the White House, it wasn't too long after that, as I recall, it was in December, uh, because after they took the White House, the New York Times and the Washington Post, it was called the New York Times-Washington Post Consortium of these major news newspapers, and there were some other mainstream media um, plaintiffs as well uh, they got uh, they got permission to do something uh, they got permission for the votes in Florida to be recounted and what's fascinating to me is that it should have been banner headlines around the world but in late November or into December of 2001 it was announced the results of that um, Washington post New York Times consortium recount of the votes in Florida showed absolutely hands down that Gore had actually won. So here you have a constitutional crisis on your hands where the whole world knows that basically, uh, the two men in the white house are there illegitimately. And the only way for them to stay in the white house, to stay in the white house had been in fact, um, to in in my very informed opinion, uh, To become complicit in the 9-11 attacks because um, because Bush had said even before he announced running for the presidency for the Republican nomination for the 2000 election he had said that he was going to be a war president and if there is a perceived war you don't change administrations. So there's a direct link in my mind between um, Bush v. Gore and um, the uh, sealing of the election, essentially, uh, by the Republicans, uh, and 9-11. So that's the major comment I wanted to make.
0: Hmm. Speaking of 9-11, there is some major new news that I'd like to uh, have you go over so we can have us for background context for the rest of the conversation.
2: Oh, yeah. Let's do that. And then it's important for Mick Harrison, who's um, the litigation director of the uh, Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, of which I'm on the board, that I would like to say that we're both here on this program. (laughs) It will be
5: a perfect segue.
0: Perfect segue. It'll be a perfect segue. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, but uh, I am here and Mick is is here also uh, as private citizens on this show. We're not here on behalf of the Lawyers Committee. Um, However... Um, If you go to my items, do you want to tell people how to do that?
0: Yep. You go to our banner, which says the uh, Dominion case tonight with a really cool close-up of the computer doing the vocabulating. They have a really gorgeous logo. That's on the top of the main page, the other side of midnight.com. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page, right under the same banner on the guest page. You will see names. Click on Barbara's, where it says Fast Link to Items. That will take you to her section of radio pictures, and item number one is the October Surprise History uh, document. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's number one on my screen.
2: Oh, it certainly isn't mine. It's the, uh, it, it's the Alan Bean. But, but on my screen, number two, what do you have number two? A bean. No, well, I don't have your number one, so I guess that was added hey, after. Let, I let, me, let
0: me refresh. That's always one of the things we are. I'm going to gonna
2: refresh, too.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, my number two. Well, let me just read the title. Then it'll either be number two or number three.
0: DOD Lawyers Considering You an yeah. Inside Job. Yeah, that's now number two. It's, it's my, my bad, guys. My bad.
2: Okay, do I you think you were looking at an older one. Yep. Uh, okay, so anyway, for tonight's show, under my items, number two, and later in the show, we'll go back to number one. Uh, but number two. DoD lawyers are considering – now, these are basically public defender lawyers from the Pentagon, from the Department of Defense. DoD attorneys are considering what is essentially a U.S. complicity or U.S. inside job defense, or believe it or not, the 9-11 mastermind, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and the other uh, alleged 9-11 conspirators called the 9 Five together as their defense in Guantanamo if the 9-11-5 case does finally go to
0: a military tribunal. Now, this is huge news. Well, this means they're <laughs> saying they were henchmen of the U.S. government to do this.
2: Well, we don't know what they're going to argue yet. Uh, what? Let, let me just say that, um, that this is an interview uh, with Tony Schaefer former Army Colonel uh, Tony Schaefer, Anthony Tony Schaefer, who revealed in a public interview to over a million people in a podcast only four days ago on on, uh, April 12th, he revealed that he, Tony Schaefer, I'll tell you who he was in a minute, why it's so important for 9-11, that he revealed that he has been approached, he claims, that he's been approached by the defense team somebody in the defense team for the 9-11-5 as a potential defense witness if it goes to tribunal, if it goes to trial. Now, it may not go to trial, but they have to build their defense strategy and and, uh, get their documents together in such an advance. So he's been contacted. Now, why is this important? It's important because of who Tony Schaefer is. Uh, Colonel Anthony Tony Schaefer, before 9-11, beginning in the year 2000, Over a year before 9-11, he was the lead, he was the director, the head, whatever you want to call it, of a special, a DOD, Pentagon Special Operations Command Task Force, whose special mission, not in the intelligence community, but in the military, in the Pentagon, to identify and track any terrorists in the United States, or anywhere in the world for that matter. And they not only identified, but were tracking and surveilling two of the three so-called terrorist operative cells in the United States, beginning in January of 2000, who later would become the alleged 9-11 hijackers. So they were tracking these people inside the United States while they were taking flight training in Florida, up in New York. Uh, out of Essex, uh, the old Essex uh, airfield there, and also uh, in Oklahoma, and Oklahoma City, and many, many other places. Also in Arizona, near uh, Fort Washougal, Arizona. So he was the, the DoD Special Operations Command was tracking the hijackers for at least a year and a quarter to a year and a half before 9/11. So. What's really important about this new revelation by Anthony Schaefer four days ago online you can the the link there is for you to watch the video, yep. and the part that's important starts at fourteen minutes in and goes to the end so it's very important to watch this you 'll get a feel for who Tony Schaefer is i don't believe he's any longer in the military. he might be you know he might be in the reserves or something, but anyway, um, what's important is that when Tony Schaefer is asked, and he did, he was asked this in a congressional hearing years ago, and he still says it to this day. When he's asked, "Well, if you were tracking all these alleged, I had alleged hijackers before 9/11, how come it happened? Why weren't they stopped?" and his answer for years has, including to Congress under oath. His answer has always been, well, we tried to alert the FBI, which is the only U.S. government agency who had the jurisdiction to stop them, to arrest them, etc. cetera, they, that we able-danger DOD was not allowed to. Our superiors, he claims, the DOD attorneys were being nitpicking about the letter of the law and wouldn't let them do it. Now, this is an actual lie. There is... M- Voluminous evidence, not only that the FBI knew, but that the very highest levels of the FBI were complicit in ensuring that the alleged hijackers were not arrested in advance. So anyway, um, this, is just, this has just gone forward. And my, my item number three, is very important because it is an affidavit that I've personally done um, or asked for by a very important 9-11 witness named Francis Gregory Ford. He goes by Greg Ford. And you can read this. It's a sworn jurid affidavit, notarized, uh, sworn under oath where you raise your hand under penalty of perjury. He says that he will say this to a court or a grand jury or a congressional hearing, raising his hand under penalty of perjury. So this should be taken very seriously. And in this affidavit, Greg Ford says that he was in a counterterrorism training class. And remember that Able Danger, this DOD, you know, alleged 9-11 hijacker tracking operation before 9-11 was, uh, was a counterterrorism operation. Uh, Greg Ford, in July of 2000, now you're talking about what to do the math, not about July, August, August. that's about, what, uh, 14 months before 9-11, That Greg Ford was one of about 35 members of a counterterrorism training course at at the Army's Fort Huachuca, Arizona, which is an Army training center. When the head of Fort Huachuca, the chief operating uh, commanding officer, came in and said, we have a a surprise for you. We're going to have three um, outside briefers brief you today. They're from Able Danger. And Tony Schaefer was the lead. And there were two others. I don't know their names, and Greg Ford doesn't remember their names, I believe. But anyway, he remembers Tony Schaefer very well because he was interested in the beginning. And Tony Schaefer did most of the talking. This is all in the affidavit. And the bottom line is, Schaefer and his, one of the two other briefers, told the class, including Greg Ford, 14 months before 9-11, that they were tracking these operative, the terrorist operative cells within the U.S. that were doing flight training in the U.S., and here's the clincher, that within the next 18 months, and in fact, it happened 14 months later on 9-11, that within the next 18 months at the outside, they will hijack commercial airlines and crash them into the World Trade Center tower and, quote, select targets in Washington, D.C., unquote. And when they do, because this will happen, not that it might, not that they have a plot, not that from their surveillance, they might do it, but they will do it. And when they do do it, all of you 35 or so people in the class, you better get your wills together because you're going to be sent to Iraq. Hmm. Now, Tony Schaefer's what's called. Well, isn't
0: isn't this the plan of the new American century?
2: Of course it is. yes. it's the Project for New American Century um manifesto document written not coincidentally in my mind exactly it was published exactly a year before 911 which in, calls which, it,
0: which included such luminaries as uh the secretary of defense Rumsfeld
2: Oh yes Rumsfeld and, and uh in my in my 911 documentary online called Uh, Behind the Smoke Curtain, which focuses on the Pentagon attack, but in the beginning, it goes into um, all of the dozens and dozens and dozens of signatories and principals uh, who signed onto the Project for New American Sensory Manifesto a year before 9-11, calling for a new Pearl Harbor, a catastrophic attack that would enable a New World Order,
0: an American New World Order, an American crystal knocked.
2: An American – well, yeah, there's a way to think about that because the Pentagon attack was a was a lot like uh, you know the Reichstag fire, and the uh, the Patriot Act was a lot like the Enabling Act yep, that yep. they're used, uh, uh, put into effect immediately under the pretext that communists had attacked the, the, Reichs- the Reichstag. Mm. So, so anyway, the important thing here. There are two. There are two things that are linked together here, and then I've got one other, uh, both 9/11 related, big times.
0: And um, well, wait, wait. Before you move on, have you guys in the lawyers' committee aggressively gone after this Tony, uh, what's his name, and gotten before some kind of a grand jury?
2: I don't think that. I don't think we should answer about the lawyers' committee. We're here as individuals. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll leave that to Max, as our litigation director, to answer if, if he chooses to. Um, but I'm I've done these I've done this um, this Greg Ford uh, affidavit as a as a private investigator, and I've shared it with the lawyers' committee. But I'm I'm not on this program representing the lawyers' committee or my position with it. Um, the the important thing linked here is we just had the head of Able Manger come out saying that he's been approached. By the DOD lawyers who are the defense attorneys for the 9-11-5 including the alleged mastermind of 9-11 Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is just four days ago saying that he's been approached to be a defense witness if it goes to trial in Guantanamo and that the currently uh, being developed defense for the 9-11-5 alleged masterminds of 9-11 uh, is US government complicity. Wow And yet this same Tony Schaefer leaves out that he knew, or at least he told that course 14 months before 9-11 at Fort Huachuca, he told them that it was going to happen. So how the hell did Tony Schaefer know that? Why isn't he mentioning that four days ago? Okay. And the last thing is my item number four. And um, this is, It's a recently court-filed, rather explosive declaration by a man by the name of Donald Canestrero, who is an investigator, again, for guess what, Uh, the Office of Military Commissions, which is part of DOD's Military Commissions Defense Organization, which provides, here we go again, the defense attorney for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the 9-11-5 at Guantanamo. And you are going to want to read this declaration. Um, and then also in my item number four under that is the – there's a link to the declaration. And then um, under that, uh, also in um, my item number four, is a link to uh, the main article on the subject by the Florida Bulldog, which is a newspaper that literally, you know, are uh, never going to give up on, the, on 9-11 truth. The Florida Bulldog is probably the only major paper in the country mm. that is really serious about 9-11 truth and has been from the beginning never given up and the title of this article is that talks about the declaration so read that first ex-fbi agents including donald canistero accused top cia fbi officials of a 9-11 cover-up saying that the cia used the saudis and others for their own cia and perhaps also fbi but mostly cia illegal domestic spying operations the law federal law does not allowed oh, well, the cia to do anything in the united states no yes, they do okay so those are those are my items that link to 9-11 so maybe we could bring in Mick.
0: for i was just going to say mick is going to be next on my radar because we are very fortunate tonight to have uh, mick harrison who is co-founder of the lawyers committee for 9-11 inquiry He is a member of the board, executive director, directs and conducts the organization's litigation strategies. He is also an experienced public interest plaintiff's attorney with a national practice focused on whistleblower protection, government oversight and accountability, and environmental protection. Well, as the only guy here, Mick – welcome back to the other side of midnight – as the only guy who admits publicly to being a lawyer (laughs) (laughs) – what I wanted to curse tonight about was how all of these simultaneous constitutional crises, and I look at the Fox Dominion suit as a crisis, but in a very weird kind of positive light, because if Dominion wins, and, and, and in essence they've already won in pretrial rulings, so we're now arguing about the amount of money and the, the malice and, and you know that, and with all these emails and texts from inside, which have been released in pretrial motions, we've got a pretty good uh, feel for how this is going to really go against Fox. And the lawyers today apparently tried to write a 65-page brief quelling the, the Judge Davis's real disgust and, and anger at the Fox lawyers apparently retaining crucial evidence that should have been shared with Dominion in discovery. If this does go against Fox, if, if the Dominion people win their libel suit, what do you see, Mick, as the ultimate legal ramifications for all kinds of other big media and even people like individual bloggers to somehow serve their public with the truth?
6: It's a Pretty good question, Richard. Let me just note that when I answer it, I'll be wearing my second hat, the (laughs) public interest plaintiff's lawyer hat, not not speaking for the lawyers' committee. But if you want to ask me later the question that Barb deferred uh, regarding uh, Colonel Schaefer and the lawyers' committee, uh, I can give you a short answer to that, wearing my other hat. But um, this question about the Dominion lawsuit, if if Dominion wins – it's sort of a double-edged sword, and, it, it's gonna, and And what kind of a sword it becomes, judicially, will depend on the exact wording of the final decision, and I think we can all predict that final decision probably will not be uh, the trial court's decision, but probably will be two or three levels of appeal up, possibly U.S. Supreme Court, because of the constitutional issue. Well,
0: wouldn't it inevitably wind up in the court?
6: Probably. I mean, really? Uh, I mean, you you can always get a settlement. Uh, They don't –
0: neither party wants to settle for very good, interesting reasons. Like we're really getting what the legal system, as I've understood it in my professional life, is supposed to be accountability, a contest, equally matched players, equally matched investigation, equally matched expertise in the law. And the fact that this trial is taking place and Fox did not choose the easy way out. Because one point six billion dollars, really, to Fox, it's like chump change. It's not trivial, but it's not, you know, the house coming down. So why are they going to trial, and why is Dominion going? Go ahead.
6: Go ahead. Well, well, your questions are good ones, Richard. Um, I think both sides have a certain level of confidence in their ability to win. Uh, Fox is likely concerned about a change in the law. Um, I mean, that concern cuts both ways. If they were to lose the suit, then they're going to have to live by whatever that rule is that's set in this case about, you know, restrictions on the press. And since uh, New York Times versus Sullivan back in 64, whenever it was, Supreme Court made that precedent-setting decision – which actually recognize even longer history that essentially First Amendment rights in this country are have been held pretty sacred by the courts for good reason, and that includes the rights of freedom of the press. And so the courts have been reluctant to to limit what the press says, particularly in terms of uh, you know defamation and damages. A liability for saying something embarrassing about a public official. Normally, and historically, the press has gotten by with that. The POPs is the extreme example. I think it's fairly safe to say. And and they've been challenged on it now by Dominion. They've gotten by with it for a long time regarding other parties. And this is the, you know the time they've been called on it. Dominion has the resources to call them on it. So... Fox has a reason to settle, I think, because if they settle, they won't get a change in the existing legal precedent. But if they litigate it to a conclusion, they risk getting a change in the existing legal precedent. And I think what that change is likely to be is a refinement of and a clarification of the rule about when you actually can get damages from a news agency when they – when they knowingly put out false information, you know that uh, what you reference the uh, the legal standard where you you know the the uh, information is false, or you act in reckless disregard of it.
4: Hmm.
0: I just think, you know, think just from my own experience at the uh, at one of the major networks at CBS, where I got to see the inner workings. Um, that there's nothing trivial about this suit. And we've never had the interior CAT scan of all these texts and emails and correspondences and all that. Well, Let's hold it right there. My guests this morning are uh, Mick Harrison and Barbara Honiger and Robert Morningstar is with us. He'll come on soon. And Marvin Jones. And we're talking this morning about all of these constitutional crises, which have kind of hit the fan simultaneous. To the revelation that, in fact, there is some fundamental fundamental problem with the court itself, in the terms of uh, Clarence Thomas avoiding legal disclosures that would reveal background influences on the court you 're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return
7: i'm.
3: Oh, now, there you have me, Abby.
0: I'm afraid you are pigeon-toed. Please, come to Philadelphia. Please come.
5: Oh, thank you, John.
8: I do want to, but you know now it's not possible the children have the measles. So you wrote.
3: Tom and little Abby.
7: Only now it's Quincy and Charles... Here's the farm here in Braintree is failing, John. The chickens and the geese have all died. The apples never survived the late
4: frost. How do
7: you? The Other Side of midnight.com. dot Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hudland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day.
0: Welcome back everyone on this Sunday night, April 16th of um, 2023. We're discussing the American Constitution tonight and all the various problems which have kind of all hit the fan simultaneous. We're currently talking with um, Mick Harrison, who is one of the co-founders of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, both Barbara, who is the chairman, and Mick, who is on the on the board are not speaking officially of course tonight for the committee but for their own individual background in government and legal expertise so um uh, mick please continue
6: so the you're asking about um you know the issue of whether there might be a settlement or i i made that observation and you were thinking this might be a sort of a battle to the death by two equally matched opponents which is Uh, an interesting observation, and I think it may be that as long as both sides don't find a reason to settle. But, you know, Dominion, I think, is in this probably for money damages, and I'm sure they don't want to be uh, defamed again, but I would be somewhat shocked and amazed if this type of history ever repeats itself anytime soon for Dominion. But... So they, you know, if Dominion gets to the point where Fox offers them significant money, uh, they might consider a settlement. If Fox gets to the point where they don't want to take the risk of precedent they're going to have to live with for the next you know, 30 years on limiting what I would consider their normal modus operandi, which is to me essentially propaganda, that they might decide to settle. So I'm not convinced yet this is going to be a battle to the death. It might turn out to be if it is that it's probably going to go to the US Supreme Court as you mentioned.
0: Hmm. There are some journalists who have been very apprehensive of the idea of, you know, the suit in itself as an abridgment of the first amendment, but, but when did the first amendment give people the right to deliberately and consistently lie and do it for yeah. month after month after month and do it for both financial Reasons admitted in all these pretrial, you know, emails that have been released by the court. In other words, it seems to me in Judge Davis's ruling that that Dominion was, uh, you know, grievously lied about, that there is no fact, that we're we're, we're beyond, are they guilty? It's now, what are the damages going to be? And I, if I was Dominion, I mean, Dominion's a huge company and they're basically long-term stability. is more about their reputation, the abridgment of their rights and their, the lies told about them than any short-term money damages because in the long term if Americans don't believe in the electoral system and in the right. integrity of the company's proceeding, they don't have a future. None of us do. Yeah. So point, I, have, I have a much more interesting feeling about Dominion's management. I don't think they're in it for the money. I think they want to hold Fox's feet to the fire and make them admit every half hour to their audience, we lied to you. We lied to you. you know, we lied to you.
6: You could well be right. It could be about vindication, and uh, and and if, if it is, it may go the distance uh, for the reason you say. But in terms of your question about, you know, since when has the uh, Constitution allowed people to lie through their teeth blatantly, knowingly, I don't think it ever has. I don't think the courts have ever said it has. We just haven't had this sort of extreme
0: so, test. So we're in the twilight zone over on Earth, too. <laughs> wow.
6: I'll leave that to you,
0: Richard. <laughs> okay. Hey, I want to bring in Robert. Can Yeah, yeah. Sh- I sure, Yeah, sure, Barbara, sure. Go ahead
2: yeah um the way I look at this case is that and Nick can correct me, but at least you know reading the New York Times and the Washington Post, the legal analysis and all of that um the the criteria is simply um for a defamation case um did the- pub- did the publisher in this case uh, fox did the publisher lie knowingly with malice so So what's important here, I think, is with malice. Um, Well, then, hang on, hang on,
0: hang on. How is malice, how is is it described? How is it identified? Because it seems it's a little different than everyday normal malice where you hate someone and say bad things about them to cause terrible injury.
2: Well, It, it is. There are different criteria for public persons um, versus private citizens. But the point, the only point I want to make here is that the way I see it, um, there's never been a case where there's been more inside proof that they lied knowingly, repeatedly for a very long time. No question whatsoever. So the way I read the law, anyway, um, I don't see there's any way that Fox can win. I am a little concerned about it. Uh, Danny Sheehan is a 40 or 45-year year friend of mine, and he was one of the attorneys who argued uh, New York Times versus Sullivan, which this case, depending upon how it's how it's uh, finally decided, uh, could be an arrow in the heart of uh, New York Times versus Sullivan, which basically gave an effective immunity to people like Fox up to this point, but they've really gone too far, so. It just seems to me that if I, I think that Dominion's going to win, and if Dominion, because they've got the proof, and if Dominion does win, I think that what that will mean for all—not just—not just us, but all media, probably alternative media as
0: well—exactly, it's and a simply, major watershed event in the First Amendment in terms of big organizations.
2: Well, any organization – any any public of information will simply have to keep records of their due diligence that will protect them in court.
0: Yep. And Uh,
2: they should be doing that anyway.
0: Yeah. uh, Mick, uh, come back with, with why this is not, I hate you. I hate your guts. I'm going to say all terrible things about you.
6: (laughs) Right. So in everyday life, we think of malice as, you know, really negative, um, emotions and a desire to harm under the law it's defined simply as knowingly um, making the false statement the implication is without it being explicit under the legal standard that you're knowingly putting out false statements because of a desire to harm but you don't have to prove to win the case a desire to harm what you have to prove is the knowing element of the false statement and you can do that by showing either actual knowledge that the statement was false or acting in reckless disregard of the truth. And that alternative definition of knowing is going to be a real challenge for Fox on the facts that have been disclosed.
0: That's why I think this is a landmark case which is going to affect the future of the First Amendment in a positive way, because one of the reasons we're in this terrible political crisis tonight is that nobody knows who to trust. Nobody knows who to believe. I mean, I worked with an incredible amount of uh, uh, awe and and, uh, pinching myself every day for the most trusted man in America, Walter Cronkite. How did Walter get that reputation? By not lying to his audience, even when it would have been more politically – shall we say, desirable at certain elements in uh, CBS. So to me, this is a course correction of a drift which has been going on far too long. And I think Dominion has the bit in its teeth and it knows it can become historic and also assure the integrity of the the electoral process and the company as part of forcing Fox to admit we lied could be right. So you're not a betting man.
6: <laughs> <laughs> well, I've given up predicting outcomes in litigation. Let me say that. Um, there is a chance that Fox could win this. I think their their work is cut out for them. It's not going to help them if the judge is sanctioning them for withholding evidence because you can lose a case on that grounds alone but
0: well don't know, don't you have something in the law called excited utterances so when tucker carlson in texting to colleagues <laughs> is saying i i i pay, i painfully hate this guy and then give him 2 hours of a platform with softball questions and basically you know uh communicating his lie i would think any 12 average jurors who really can decide on the basis of evidence. We've never had this kind of CAT scan insight into the hypocrisy of simply doing it for the money and the ratings and the political power.
5: Ever.
6: You know, I think that's right. And I think the reason is the courts have been so protective of the media over the years. And because there hasn't been such an extreme case that the litigation on these types of defamation claims against media. I've never gotten this far where, you know, uh, Dominion now has gotten all this this discovery, uh, documents, depositions, you normally don't get that far on these first amendment slash defamation cases. And it's only because this case is extreme that it has gone this far. So the question really is, is this gonna be a downside for democracy by intruding into first amendment rights or is it going to be an upside for democracy by preventing propaganda harmful propaganda from continuing which can undercut democracy i tend to think it's the latter but uh, the devil is going to be in the details (laughs) of how the decision ultimately is written Hmm.
0: okay let me bring in robert morningstar who was our civilian intelligence analyst he's an investigative journalist he hosts a, a program on another network, which is uh, doing very well. He has incredibly interesting backgrounds in photo interpretation, geometric analysis, computer imaging, um, he's a private pilot, um, he's an expert in Chinese, the Chinese language, history and martial arts, and he is an avid Trump supporter. So I wanted to provide some uh, fair and balanced journalism tonight. So Robert, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. What's your take on, you, the, on, the, on, on, the, on the Fox, you know, Dominion suit?
5: Okay, I'm going to have some very, very cogent comments on that. But, uh, and thank you for inviting me to this court of uh, public opinion. And I'm intrigued. I was in, delighted that it's about First Amendment rights. But first, I want to go quickly through my items because most of the time I come on and we never get to my items. Item number one. Court rejects Bragg's request for a restraining order against Jordan. Tomorrow, the 17th of April, the Congress is coming to New York, to the Javis Center, to hold hearings on how Alvin Bragg has quite literally degenerated the justice system by decriminalizing a lot of crimes like second-degree murder, robbery, uh, assault, rape, He's arresting people, arraigning them, and letting them go without bail. Okay, that's item number one, and George, uh, excuse me, not George, but um, Judge Brown's decision in rejecting Bragg's, um, the judge is, is contained there. He asked for a temporary injunction, and the judge dismissed it out of hand, wouldn't even hear it. Next. New York State. Wait, 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 wait,
0: Robert, why is this – I'm this ask asking a question. System. Thank you. Well, why, okay. is, why is this significant? These kind of legal tussles go on all the time.
5: Well, because this deals with oversight of the Congress, of the judicial system of the United States, and that's what it is. And it's also a question of freedom of speech. Let me go on to item number two. This deals with the Second Amendment. New York is one of the bluest states in the Union. Only California is bluer than it. And they tried, Hochul, the governor, tried to pass a red flag law where they could confiscate the weapons of individuals whom snitches called uh, to police or authorities to say they thought this person had a gun, they thought this person was dangerous, and they, they started swatting people. People could call anybody, could call the police in any local town or the New York State police and tell them, this guy has a gun, I think they're dangerous, and they were swatting people. They were even swatting schools. They were running into schools where a fake report of guns and a loose shooter was being made, and they were shutting down the school, terrorizing the children, and showing up. And one of the men, one of the gentlemen who was uh, swatted, that's a popular term now, when a SWAT team shows up at your house, and terrorizes you, arrests you. He took New York State to court and a judge named Craig Brown <coughs> shot down the red flag law. And his, uh, his finding is contained in a second article. I'll leave it to you to read it. Thirdly, <clears throat> a warning from Vietnam veteran and financier Robert Moriarty, we are going to see changes, 50 years of change in the next few months. Now this deals with what is really happening in Ukraine, and the leak that happened, the Pentagon Papers leak. Robert, what does this have to
0: do with the Constitution
5: and the items tonight? Well, it has everything to do with the Constitution and the right to know the truth. The the fellow who leaked the documents, the Pentagon documents, is being framed, and that's what Moriarty says, because among those documents was a CIA document of the highest order, top secret, ultra, which is not even – it's not even archived. We're talking
0: about it's this New England National Guardsman, this yes, airman, yes, who was a technician, yeah. who, put these a docu- who put these documents on the… It's a man. Jack Cicera. It's a man. Okay. okay. I, I said person. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't… I heard you say woman.
5: All right, let's go no, to number No,
0: I did not say woman.
5: Okay. All right. No. Number four. Trump addressed the NRA convention in Indianapolis, and he addressed the subject of First Amendment rights and Second Amendment rights. And I want to remind everyone that the NRA started, was started by white people who bought guns to supply them to Americans, black Americans, to defend themselves against the Ku Klux Klan. And that traditionally, the Democrat Party was the home of the Ku Klux Klan until 1964, when Lyndon Johnson warned them all to bail out after the killing of uh, a civil rights worker down in South. Fifth item, a movie's coming out. And I appear in it with Jim Mars and Linda Moulton Howell. It's called UFOs, the CIA, and the JFK Assassination. And a little treat for everyone else, including Richard, Alaska Secret Pyramid with Richard Hoagland. He made this film several years ago with Sibella Claire, who's the producer of UFOs, CIA, and the JFK Assassination. And item number four is my interrogation of an artificial intelligence machine which I think you'll get. A <laughs> Robert Morningstar interrogate It's Chad so Dean. Star Trek, Robert. It's so damn yeah. Star Trek. Well folks, I warn you against artificial intelligence and I've been doing it for more than a year because I caught artificial intelligence cheating at chess. Okay? Now let me go Sounds by, very human to me. Right. Well <laughs> uh, you know people who cheat at chess Get hands cut off in some countries. Anyway, I want to go back to the analogy of the court of public opinion. And I want would, to would bring up a point of order, Richard. And I'm going to tell you right now, you're running this court of public opinion as judge, jury, and executioner. And my <laughs> point of order is that you have accused Trump of treason and insurrection and i would remind you that his second impeachment trial acquitted him of those charges so please Yeah, because a political cowardice come on robert let's not uh, well, uh, re- let's uh, Richard, not refight Richard, all
0: things thing please please but let's but you're not let's yeah, not Richard, refight. You're the one who brought it up because it's the truth plan. it's out there the <laughs> house the house committee is what who accused initially based on evidence of Trump witnesses, the president of treason. He had his trial and he was
5: acquitted. No, he
0: had a trial in the Senate. That's not not a criminal trial.
5: That's lying up ahead. And she's not going to be tried in any uh, court for this uh, bogus uh, charge. I think we're getting a little far afield. Okay. Anyway, I I urge you to listen to Trump in item number four. I listen to him a lot. I find him fascinating. He's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. fascinating. And look, I'm telling you, this thing is blowing up in Bragg's face. And he uh, he has done more for the Trump campaign than anybody could imagine. Now, let me jump to Dominion. I think Dominion set a trap trap that, that they have walked into. And it's a bear trap of their own making. Because unbeknownst to the majority of American people, that entire election was monitored by the United States Army and the Director of National Intelligence. And some other the things that have been withheld, and I, I think that it's going to go to trial, are the data that shows that data was being transferred via satellite to CIA stations in Europe where very rapid artificial intelligence calculations were being made as to how many votes were needed to make sure that Trump was defeated. Another interesting little piece of evidence— Hang on, hang on, hang on,
0: hang on. Hang on, Robert, please, it's a back and forth, come on. How come then we have a tape from Rudy Giuliani when Bartolomo um, asked um, Giuliani, do you have evidence of key Dominion violations? or I think Pelosi came in there somehow being involved, and he says right on tape, no, no, we have no evidence. I mean, how do you get around the guy in charge of the campaign for the president to keep he him elected? How do, you, how do you reconcile these background tapes with the public posture well, of Fox and, and uh, uh, Giuliani and, uh, and the other folks?
5: I can't speak for Giuliani's strategy. But I know that this evidence is in, and they've had it, and they were keeping it quiet. But one of the most interesting pieces of evidence is a videotape that a viewer was videotaping the screen on CNN and the numbers, and in 10 seconds, there was a drop of 20,000 votes from Trump that appeared as an increase of 20,000 votes for Biden. Now you cannot say that you were that he lost votes. He had, let's say six uh, six hundred forty thousand votes in a particular state, and I remember the number. And then yes. in the next so instance, Robert, he has Robert, look, the, 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 these are five.
0: these are in the weeds details. No one's following. That's so what why, that's, watch why watch that's why we're going to have this ever. trial, which will,
5: some of the, it's going to be there, which the will
0: hopefully days. hopefully it will. But let me ask you a very important question. The judge has already ruled, Judge Davis has already ruled that Fox lied about Dominion. Lied about Dominion. Case over. I don't see how he can do that without the trial and the evidence having been presented. Because of the pretrial motions, and when, when both sides asked for summary judgment, they asked him to make the judgment. Both of them concurred, we want you, Judge, to basically vote for our side and kick out the other guy. And that was not his only two choices it, it's not binary he no. took some, he elements, know- some elements some you- elements and so we're now going to have a trial about the elements he did not decide but the truthfulness of dominion versus the untruthfulness of fox has already been decided it's on the record fox lied did he use that
5: word lie go read the transcript well was just answer my question yes he did he yes, word, lie?
0: He yes lied. of course
5: okay All right, then I'll accept it from you.
0: Well, uh, don't accept it from me. Go and check out the transcript of his ruling,
5: I think, last Friday. I think it was last Uh, Friday. I got more important transcripts, including Barbara's transcripts about what she's addressing. And I'd like to say that Barbara and I had a very, very in-depth, almost three-hour conversation after my radio show today when I interviewed for the third time the man who killed President Kennedy and delivered the death blow from the grassy knoll. And the big mistake that everyone is making on this program and everywhere else is thinking that we have been ruled for the last 30 years or more by a two-party system. We were taken over. George H.W. Bush took over the United States completely during his presidency. He had a Crow presidency with Clinton. George H.W. Bush was a partner with with Bill Clinton in drug-running operations that were bringing in tons of drugs into Mena, Arkansas. And they had it out and Clinton's administration was an extension of the fourth Reich plan for a new world order. There's no difference to say that we have a Democrat party and a Republican party is superficial. The deep state has been controlling every election in this country since at least 1998. And the proof of it is that well, wait,
0: wait 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 wait. then how in 2016 did Trump sneak by?
5: Because he outsmarted them. Or he is he part of the plot? Well oh, right well, you're right. remember he had he had Hitler's,
0: he had Hitler's book on his bedside table according well, to sworn so testimony. Why? it
5: happened in my library.
0: Does that make me a Nazi? Do you read it so. Do you read it every night like she said you he know, did?
5: you're tell me you're not going to tell me that Trump read my count? unless you were in his bedroom you can't make that statement okay so and
0: marla maples no, you just marla what? maples testified i think it's marla maples testified no. in court about no it this. was
2: ivana trump oh
0: i'm sorry okay thank <laughs> okay. you but it is right. part of a court record under perjury under perjury that's why we have a judicial system based on counter forces and opposing attorneys and representation and the law underneath. This is why I'm so delighted this stuff is finally reaching the courts,
5: yeah, and everybody's but, watching. But I'm telling you, I've read Mein Kampf. I don't think it's a crime to understand how that guy thought, and I don't think it incriminates a person as a Nazi any more than reading Marx. And Engels making me a communist. You have to understand what the housing. Robert,
0: come on, these are exaggerated comparisons.
5: No one, no one has ever accused you of being. You're the one who brought up. Because it's part
0: of a pattern of philosophy, and when you look at Trump's actions, they conform exactly to the bigger plan. Anyway, yeah,
2: can we just point what, out that you're actually agreeing with each other that Trump is probably still part of the fourth right plan? I agree with that. And, uh, oh, I will, I will go
0: even further, Barbara. I will say he is the terrestrial vanguard representative of the breakaways upstairs because this is all part of destroying the United States, bringing it into a world order that is fascistic, so we have no defense against the real bad guys when push comes to shove.
2: Right. right, and 9-11 was the major, well, the JFK assassination, they got by with that. They that was the, with that was the kickoff. They got by with MLK, you know. and then they got by with World Trade Center 93, and they got by with Oklahoma City, and they got by with
5: 9-11. And you have always uh, here uh, been quoting the New York Times and the Washington Post. And the New York Times and the Washington and Post. The Wall and the Wall Street Journal acting, and Fox. And acting, and acting hand in glove with the fourth reich with the cia with the deep state they covered up the jfk assassination for 60 years it's coming out now my group is bringing it out robert kennedy is calling them out rand paul and uh, thomas massey and the senate and the congress have openly stated that they have to investigate the cia for the murder of president kennedy and the washington post and the new york times have been co-conspirators along with your friend walter cronkite who fed us all the bull crap that came out of the warren commission report 30 and seconds that, hmm. 30, obviously well.
0: i vigorously disagree with that last assessment but first amendment robert's here to say it okay hang on guys we are at the uh, bottom of the hour my guests this morning too numerous to mention go to the website you can find them all their background their expertise We will have a very interesting interchange of views among our panelists so far after the break. And then Georgia Lambert will join us, and we will raise the conversation to a hyper-dimensional level. You're on the other side of midnight. It's Sunday night, April 16th. We shall return.
7: on the side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk Radio, cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
0: And welcome back everyone on this Sunday night, April 16th. The lilacs are about to bloom. You have uh, no idea what that means, but uh, in future weeks, I will tell you. It's a really incredibly interesting story, and that's all I'll say for right now. Okay, um, it is now the bottom of the hour. We've got a half an hour till Georgia joins us. It's kind of like I'm opening the mics to everyone's perspectives on everyone else's data and opinion and recitations and links, so on that note, who would like to respond to some of the things that Robert said? I would. Go for it.
2: Yeah, just really briefly. Um, okay, first off, it's Ivana Trump. It was her sworn, it was her sworn affidavit on her divorce. She not only said that Trump read Hitler's compiled speeches at night before he went to sleep. But also that when uh, associates came into his office, presumably in Trump Tower, if, it was, if they had it then, that was the implication. But when they came into his office, he actually gave the name of at least one who would click his heels, do the Hitler salute, and cry out, Heil Hitler. I just think that we have to be open-minded about Trump not being ...different than George H.W. Bush, whose father was Hitler's banker in New York, okay? So, and there's also a very important book that Robert also knows called the Skorzeny Papers. Skorzeny was Hitler's top commando, his top special operations officer, who after the end of World War II was brought on to the Allied side, and he became the trainer... Of at least a thousand assassins worldwide, assassins, including for the Mossad, for the CIA, for MI5, MI6, for the Mossad, for for almost every country in the world, and Skorzeny's man uh, was Skorzeny was in Dallas on 9/11. So we, we basically we brought the Nazis to. This country, they became our space program, which you love, for good reason, Richard. Um, but Trump is not outside of this line. And for Robert to say, I love him, but for Robert <laughs> to try to us to believe that Clinton is the bad guy because he got 10% when George H.W. Bush got 90% of the drug profits out of Nina. These, of course, it's, there isn't really one... There's only one party when it comes to the dirty tricks and the black ops in the deep state. And, you know, Trump's no different. He's
5: right. not different. Okay. He got 10% of dirty, filthy drug money.
2: Yeah, and the CIA led by that's George that's Bush that's got 90%. That's what I hold
5: most against Clinton is that Clinton built up China. Clinton gave them our satellite technology, gave them our missile technology, Mysteriously, the legendary codes and software for developing nuclear weapons without detonating what with nuclear weapons dis- disappe- disappeared from the White House. Clinton funneled trillions of dollars to China to bring it forth. China was a primitive country as far as technology was concerned, but they declared war on the United States, and I've told you about this. <clears throat> the book was called, is called Unrestricted Warfare with a subchapter called Broadband Warfare, written by two Chinese colonels in 1999. I got the Chinese copy and then I got a translation and I started warning people, the Chinese have declared silent war against the United States and broadband warfare means that they declared war on us on every level, on the economic level, the military level, the scientific level, the sociological level, and the psychological level. And the reason they did this is they felt that the Tiananmen uh, demonstrations which almost toppled communism was an act of war and CNN's role in that was an act of war and so they took that very seriously and they declared secret war in the United States and they their plan was to catch up with the United States in all these fields within 10 years because it had been anticipated it would take them 30 years to do so. So that's... And who what,
2: opened China? Who, who opened the United States to China? It was a Republican Nixon. And who had oh, right. owned a bunch of golf courses there, but
5: Prescott ah, was why? here? Why? Why Nixon? Nixon. I'm going to tell you why Nixon did that. Well, wait, wait, wait. You, you know the cliche. What? Only Nixon could go to China. Yes, that's true. But why did he go? And this I'm giving to you because it came from Douglas Caddy the lawyer who represented E. Howard Hunt in his trial. Mm -hmm. E. Howard Hunt was one of the Watergate plumbers that he was caught. He was also an active CIA agent who was in Dealey Plaza, part of the, the oversight of the assassination of President Kennedy. And what is revealed is that the UFO issue was paramount And the non-disclosure, the the truth embargo, as as Stephen Bassett calls it, was paramount. And Richard Nixon feared that we would have to face an invasion, an alien invasion, and that we could not win it without the cooperation of China and Russia. And it was for that reason that he made overtures through Kissinger and opened up China.
2: Do you agree with him?
5: Oh, yes, I do agree with it. I know. What's
2: wrong with opening up to China, then?
5: Well, surrendering to China and having China as a partner against its common enemy is a different thing. But I think that the Chinese have made a secret deal with this alien force. And this alien force... Well, hang on, hang
0: on, Robert. Remember, my model is that they moved the the, the ETs, the, the Nazis, you know, the breakaways, they moved their focus from... Nazi Germany, across decades, to a new geopolitical player on the yes. world stage, which is China, and then China did something which is so egregious and so outrageous that they got blowback in the form of COVID as an attack on China for not being loyal, party, whatever, whatever you know amalgamation that they were involved in. They did something that the guys upstairs did not like, and Mm -hmm. I believe, based on the evidence, the data, it had to do with all these stunning images of what's really covering the moon. And now you've got South Korea, which quietly is taking incredibly revealing imagery, polarized images of the glass structures, and you've got China quietly adopting the image with a little modification and putting up as part of their space program logos. So it's almost like the Asian contingent on planet against other people on planet Earth in service to bad guys from upstairs.
5: There, we're on the same page. Wow. You cannot trust the aliens. The aliens are anti-human. They have manipulated every country with whom they've made a treaty. They've double crossed every country with whom they've made a treaty. Now, when when you say this, are we talking
0: true aliens or are we talking family ETs?
5: I'm talking about true aliens. If you read William William Mills Tompkins' book, Selected by... Yeah,
0: I read it. You read all of them.
5: All all three or four of them. I, I don't quite book, know where to make a decision. That book explained to me what Hitler was talking about when he talked about the Blonde Beast. All my youth growing up, reading William Shire's, Shire's Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, Hitler's talking about a new race, the Blonde Beast. What the hell is he talking about? Until I found out from William Mills Tompkins that... The Office of Naval Intelligence discovered that the Nazis had made contact with an extraterrestrial race of reptilians, while we were assisted by a humanoid race, popularly called Pleiadians or Mm. tall white or humanoid, and that... Or, Or the Scandinavians. Okay, but let me just say this. This explained to me the blonde beast. The Hitler said that they were going to create a new new race. You might call it transhumanism. And that this new race was going to be a blonde beast. Now, what would you get if you crossed a blonde, blue-eyed, white Aryan with a reptilian? What you would get is a blonde beast. This is reality. This is what the Nazis really believed. And Barbara and I know about their occult practices and their black magic and their devotion to this alternate reality that was ruled by something called the Black Sun. And it was, a and the Black Sun symbol was a very special symbol, a cult symbol for the Thule Gesellschaft and the Vril Society and the Ukrainian army, the Azov brigades, were wearing that same Black Sun symbol on their uniforms. So. All of this stuff that we see on television is a cover-up, a patina over the reality. And nothing that we have been told on Fox News, on MSNBC, they are all part of Operation Mockingbird. The CIA took over mass media at every level, newspapers, magazines, television, and Hollywood. And they have exercised MKUltra mind control on the not just the entire nation, but now the entire world, and that's what we have to break free from. We have to break MK Ultra mind control over our own minds. My yeah, first
2: that's correct. It, it's about our time.
5: My first and greatest contribution, first and greatest, was exposing the doctoring of the Zapruder film because I myself was fooled. It made me sick to see it, and the reason was that my subconscious mind knew that I was being fooled while my ego was just befuddled. The Zapruder film is a consciously engineered optical illusion if one person watches it, but it's a consciously engineered mass hallucination if many people watch it. So that's what we have to break. We are all on the same side. We all love our country. <laughs> we all love each other. And it's this divisiveness is being instilled in us by MKUltra, Ultra cia propaganda
0: okay i think it's barbara's turn yes please
2: oh it's my turn For what what?
0: (laughs) well you had something you wanted to say to robert
2: oh yeah i i I mean robert and i've already had over three to four hours of a time i'm still typing up notes from our conversation
0: but we did not have your conversation bugged so at the risk of going out of the limb tell us where you differ with his perspective or where you agree and and mick you're not getting out of this either i want to come back to the Zero. first amendment and marvin you're being very quiet i know you have some things you want to say about the second amendment coming off uh uh warren burger who was of course uh, uh chief justice so uh barbara, well, I really Bar- think, barbara you first. i really
2: think it's already an hour and 45 minutes in. we should get back to the purpose of the program i realize that that my dear soul brother Robert Morningstar has taken advantage of the topic of the First Amendment to try to get out all of the things he wasn't able to get out in all of the other shows. Oh,
0: he's been- he is, he's kind of do. But we really yeah. are talking about the First but, but it's Amendment. Not
2: really the topic. I think we should go back to the First Amendment and the uh, Fox Dominion case and uh, the other major breaking uh, news.
0: Well, the, oh, re- the, reason, the reason that I had in my items the whole thing about Clarence Thomas is because so much of imminent American history is going to be determined by this court. And now we have irrefutable evidence. The court is rotten. One member has been violently, you know, transgressing the American largesse and honor system and, you know, belief in the court and the objectivity of law and all that, because he's basically been bought and paid for. And what we need is something at the level of a revolution in the third branch of government, which over the last several decades, we've had in the judici- and in, in the legislative and in the executive. But so far, the judiciary has remained basically above it. And now we know we can't let them remain above it. So I'm gonna go to the lawyer. Mick, the, what,
2: the judiciary has never been above it. It's always been political. Now the whole, the whole political whole has come out of
0: the closet. The perception has been it's been above it. And perception, as some old cliche says, is 90% of politics. So will
2: people know better now. Look at the Wisconsin vote for the Supreme Court.
0: Absolutely, a landslide in Wisconsin in the right direction. So, Mick, thoughts?
6: Well, I think um, there are two sort of uh, ways the judicial branch can be considered above politics. Um, one is you could attempt to assert, which wouldn't, I think, be upheld by history, that there's never political influence on the judicial branch. I think history has shown that's not correct. Uh, the other is that it's it's – let's say that, that – Justice Thomas may be an example where there may be influence by by parties and I haven't investigated his particulars, but I'm concerned about what's being reported, about him receiving unreported gifts and things. Uh, if those gifts, you know, had something, had a string attached, then we would have a problem. And well, wait, 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 wait. wait, wait.
0: A, his mother's well-being is totally dependent on Crow, the billionaire. Totally. Who would put their mother so in that I'm not, position? I'm not,
6: I'm not trying to talk you out of that. What I'm, what I'm saying is
0: – Well, that's just a fact. That if, you know you can say that it, there's no malevolent influence. But he's I got, didn't say that. But he's got a real edge on Thomas's life as a, court, as a Supreme Court justice because his I, mother – I understand your concern
6: about that. And let me punctuate it, but my point was made with an if. I wasn't making a statement about what is the fact. I haven't investigated the facts, but here's, um, I guess, the problem. The problem is for justices that there are three ways I think a, a Supreme Court justice can be removed and probably should be removed from office. One is for a high crime or a misdemeanor from, I think that's Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution. Uh, Article 3 also says judges, which would include justices, serve during Times of good behavior, which means bad behavior, however the law would define that, would be a basis for removing a justice. And then you got 42, Title 42 of the U.S. Code, Section 455, which is the statute that applies to to basically recusal of a judge or removal of a judge at any level. And the standard for that is simply that these circumstances might cause the public to question the impartiality of the judge. Now, I have the facts that have come forward about Justice Thomas reached that standard? I think one can argue that they do, clearly. I think you're arguing that, Richard, among other things. So my point is simply this. It's hard to remove a judge, even though politics may be influencing a judge. Politics don't give a mechanism for removing a judge, only the specific provisions in the law for removing a judge allow you a remedy when politics do intrude into the judiciary and I would be an advocate for those three avenues I just identified being pursued with vigor on any set of facts which would invoke them
0: okay you go lawyers love precedent I like precedent you can count on precedent stare decisis is important during the Nixon years, I believe a Democratic justice, Abe Fortas, voluntarily resigned when he was shown that his legal position and his ethics were, you know, not above reproach, and he did the right thing. I don't see Clarence Thomas resigning.
6: Well, I haven't heard anything to indicate that. Uh, that is the appropriate response from a judge. Even if a judge is innocent of a charge, if the circumstances would cause the public to reasonably question their impartiality, they are supposed to either recuse from a given case, or if it's a very broad, uh, you know, potential bias which might affect their entire functioning, then I think resignation probably is the is the remedy.
0: What are your thoughts on the expansion of the court? I mean, it hasn't really worked ever since FDR tried it you know, uh, over, what, 70 years ago. But it seems to me, given the extraordinary gerrymandered districts which wind up with the current court we've got, uh, a redress of grievances would be to expand the court to allow the real representation of uh, the American electorate to be reflected in the court, and that would dilute these really radical extremists like Thomas, who did not even recuse himself Uh, on an issue where his wife is involved up to her eyebrows in terms of the uh, Trump election.
6: I understand your point, and some folks have advocated that approach to cure a problem that was created by the essentially the politicization of the judicial branch, and I think it's a reasonable assertion based on historical fact that we have the Supreme Court, we have because of the intrusion of politics, And once that happens, uh, you have two choices Uh, in terms of the American public. You can either tolerate the abuse that already occurred, which is going to give one political point of view, or perhaps worse than that, maybe not a political point of view, maybe a corrupt point of view, control. And you can live with it because you believe that, you know, on the principle that you don't want to yourself engage in politicizing the court or you can engage in the same sort of tactics that the other other, whatever you want to call them parties did uh, and you can do what you're talking about which is you can when, when you know you're in power you can expand the court make more appointees balance it out is that a politicization of the Supreme court maybe it is but it may be simply a counter well but to a if, politicization you, if- that are
0: if you follow the idea of checks and balances, which is the theme throughout this incredible experiment, the American experiment, the idea right. that you have a limited number of judges who have been basically wedged into those positions through extreme political pressure in the background, and I'm thinking the Federalist Society, what Thomas has taken you know, freely for 20 years, et cetera, et cetera. We don't know what's going on with the rest of the justices. It's like an impenetrable I, cloud. I
6: understand the problem.
0: So if we, if there seems to be a really uh, strong resistance on the part of the Democrats to expand the court and to limit terms, which then gets me back to my other question, which is where do the idea under the Constitution of lifetime terms for the court and for the federal judiciary come from when power corrupts? An absolute lifetime power corrupts Uh, absolutely. I
6: understand understand your point. I think the ideal, the goal was, it was perhaps optimistic in light of what you just described about our realities, but the the idea was the judiciary should be above politics, and by giving life tenure, the judges aren't beholding to anyone after they're appointed. That was the thought. Unless they have a mother. <laughs> well, no, I'm I'm not trying to talk you out of the reality of the potential for influence on judges. It happens. It's been documented historically. Some judges have been impeached. So we're not just you know hypothesizing. Um, so I, it was a it was a concept that you know one would have hope, hoped could have worked. and I think it's probably been demonstrated that it has not worked. Yeah, let me know the this. question is, what's the remedy?
0: Let me go to Marvin. Marvin, as, as our resident constitutional scholar tonight, where did we where did they get off the idea of checks and balances and give basically lifetime carte blanche to a limited group of, of old white men?
5: That's a racist statement.
0: It's true, historically. There's only three blacks on the court in the last 247 years. It's still a racist statement. I take umbrage at
5: it. It's a statement of fact. It is
2: not a racist statement, Robert. I would like
5: to say a very short statement. I think that Judge Mershand, who is overseeing the Trump indictment trial, should recuse himself because he donated to the Biden campaign and his daughter was a campaign manager for Kamala Harris. That's all
0: uh i that's a long conversation anyway uh Marvin, I was asking you the question
1: uh, well at at the uh convention one other way of removing judges that was considered was something called a uh, joint address, where the uh president would go before uh, both houses of Congress. And, say, Judge uh, John Smith did uh, something uh, reprehensible and lay the case before them, and then there would be a a vote to remove John Smith. But in in order to have uh, a judiciary that would be uh, more separate from politics, uh, they decided upon... And I want to emphasize, uh, and uh, uh, the, the, the lawyer just mentioned it, was what the Constitution actually says. It says that judges serve during good behavior. And I, I know one of the things that gets me talking back to the TV or radio <laughs> or, or the computer screen, as a, a case may be, is when I hear uh, so-called mainstream journalists talk about, they have lifetime tenure. Well, no, actually, they are allowed to serve during good behavior. And what I would like to see is more enforcement of that. Uh, We we really need to have, uh, say, both both the House and uh, particularly the Senate, since uh, the the Senate has to confirm uh, judges, keep an eye on what judges are doing and uh, a former assistant united states uh, attorney glenn kirshner he has uh, a program on youtube called justice matters and i think this was sometime last month where he uh, he proposed uh, one way of doing so, say at the, the district uh, court level in, in particular, was for citizens just to, when they go in to listen to uh, uh, trials, to actually uh, monitor the uh, judge's conduct. And in regard to uh, Justice Thomas, I have been waiting since all of this latest information has come out about uh, him with the uh, the guy uh, and uh, buying his mother's home uh, uh, fixing it up and all of that, and then uh, he's getting money from some company that oh it turns like, out that Thomas's
0: originally- it turns out Thomas's real estate firm, you know incorporated i guess in mm-hmm. in in, in um, Florida, uh, I'm sorry of uh, Georgia. Um, uh, had two other houses as part of the three-house deal and it turns out now according to ProPublica and their continuing reportage uh, that, that the company is all fake that he's been funneled money from other sources under the illusion of a real estate firm that was charging rent but in fact that quietly went away and we are reaching the uh, top of the hour so everyone hold it there we're talking about the foundations of this incredible remarkable experiment um, basically the uh, uh, creation of the of of the Constitution of the United States of America where we enjoy remarkable freedoms under law if that law is abridged politically for reasons that we're not allowed to know that's where The disclosure things come in. It skews the system irrevocably. And we are now, obviously, at that point. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we come back, we're going to be joined by uh, Georgia Lambert, and we're going to take this conversation to a higher, hyperdimensional level. Don't touch that dial.
7: Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs nine ninety five dollars a month, 33 cents a day. Thought Radio at the edge of Science and Thought. The other side of midnight.com.
6: The subject of my last 15 dispatches is anybody there? Does anybody care? Does
7: anybody
4: care? Your humble and obedient.
3: Is anybody there? Hmm. Does anybody care? Does anybody see what I see? They want me to quit They say, John, give up the fight Still to England I say Good night forever, good night For I have crossed the Rubicon Let the bridge be burned behind me Come what may, come what may And
0: welcome back on this Sunday night, uh, Monday morning, amazing music from 1776, an idealized version of the founders and what they thought we should think about, living together as a republic.
3: What I see, I see fireworks, I see the pageant, the pump and play, I hear the bells ringing out, I hear the cannons
7: roar,
4: I see Americans,
0: all Americans, free for an hour, Okay, gentlemen and ladies, we are back. So who
1: had the floor? Myron, was it you? Hey, yes, I did. I, I, I just wanted to complete my last thought about uh, about Justice Thomas and all of the improprieties going on with him. And when I've been watching the news, I have been waiting for uh, someone to say, and I've been disappointed that some of these former assistant and actually uh, United States attorneys have not said – Three words, one of which is bribery, and the other is grand jury, as in in impanel one and investigate this man.
0: Well, there have been some very tentative, you know, Justice Roberts, please, 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 would you please look under the blanket and see if there's something there or under the bed? We don't want to look. Ah, we can't afford it. I'm being facetious. (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, there, there has been a move by the Senate Judiciary Committee. That was what Senator Klobuchar was talking about uh, uh, yesterday. Um, now, uh, Mick, do you know whether there is a way that Congress can compel uh, Thomas to come before them in the judici- Judiciary Committee and under oath tell the truth about this and a whole bunch of other things?
6: Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, I know that um, uh, they've got this very interesting hearing going on or coming up in New York where the uh, House Judiciary Committee is looking into what a state prosecutor is doing, which I wonder whether they have jurisdiction to do that. I don't know without researching it whether a Supreme Court justice, given the separation of powers,  … … can be brought before Congress unwillingly. Uh, I think there's been know, one despised, other example.
0: I think there's been one other example of a Supreme Court justice answering a subpoena to testify, I believe. Google is that well, be
6: done. it could be done in an impeachment proceeding.
0: But it can't be but done other in just than, other ordinary... than that,
6: well, that's what I – I'd have to research that for you, Richard. I don't know the answer to that.
0: Well, if if the judge basically said – let's say Thomas says – You know, up yours, which is a line from a famous Star Trek uh, episode. Uh, The next step would be what the uh, nine, uh, what the um, uh, January 6th committee did with its witnesses that would not comply. They turned to the Justice Department, and in one or two occasions, I think it was Bannon and somebody else, they basically uh, held them in contempt of Congress, and Bannon, I think, had jail time. Uh, For his noncompliance. So is that the second level remedy? If Thomas basically says, you know, no way. Does the legislative branch, the other co-equal branch, have the lawful right to demand, even if he sits there and takes the Fifth Amendment, Clarence Thomas appear in front of an appropriately impaneled committee?
6: Well, I understand your question. I think it would depend on the purpose of the appearance. If it was related to an impeachment inquiry, I think the answer is yes. Otherwise,
0: but well, what if it was related to the idea of expanding the court, getting much better equality between representation than we currently have reflected in the court? In other words, a legislative function for which they have to find out, Thomas, what were you doing?
6: Well, I don't think they can get there indirectly i think they're going to have to address it head on and, and one way to do that is to call a grand jury but there is immunity there are immunity questions no, wait, wait. That can, compl- can, can, a, can
0: a congressional committee senate or house impanel a grant i thought that was only a judicial function
6: i'm i'm not, i wasn't referring to the senator house per se oh okay okay uh but they could refer the matter to the justice department and request a grand jury and, and they could relay the information they think supports you know, grand jury consideration. As you may know from our discussions of the Lawyers' Committee adventures on 9-11, there is a federal statute that says every U.S. attorney has a mandatory duty – I emphasize the word mandatory – duty to relay to a special grand jury any report from anyone, any citizen of a federal crime. If he, anyone in Congress believes that a federal crime has been committed by a justice or anyone else, and they're still a citizen, they can make that report to any U.S. attorney, and in my view, the U.S. attorney has to present it to a grand jury.
0: Barbara, weren't you in a similar position with the committee that it was bound by law and they just didn't do a thing, do anything with it?
2: Sorry. What committee are you referring to?
0: The Lawyers the committee.
2: Lawyers I'm sorry. What's the question? I'm well, not clear?
0: The, uh, I thought you took a case potentially to the Southern District. and they, did. And, but nothing happened because they just ignored it, and they can't technically in the law ignore it, and they did. Well,
6: here – so, Barbie, you can answer that if you want, but there is a legal answer to why that wouldn't work in the case we're talking about now.
2: Well, do you want me to say what we did and didn't do to correct that first or not?
6: yes yeah, uh, you're, you're welcome to
2: oh, okay if i understand correctly your question richard um the lawyers committee in april of 2008 filed a uh, petition with u.s attorney for the second circuit in new york which uh, is that agency. was tor-
6: uh, you don't mean 2008 Barbara. no i meant
2: 2018 i'm sorry okay yeah i I substituted a, a what, zero What? Well,
0: it was 10 years among friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 10
2: years among friends. What's a decade among friends? So anyway, in April of 2018, the Lawyers Committee filed our our grand jury petition uh, with the U.S. Attorney for the Second Circuit in New York, which is the jurisdiction for the World Trade Center tower uh, attacks on 9-11. Okay. And World Trade Center 7 and all of those attacks. And um, we, to our surprise, on November 7th of 2018, we got a letter back from from the uh, officers there, um, saying that they would comply with the federal statute that requires them, the U.S. Attorney's Office, to. We our understanding is, Nick can correct me if I'm wrong, that the federal there's a federal statute that requires a U.S. Attorney to to forward what we in turn gave to the U.S. attorney as a middleman, as it were, to the sitting or if not sitting to convene, to literally convene a federal criminal grand jury. And then time went by and Mick, uh, and other attorneys with the Lawyers Committee contacted them and said, well, have you done it? And they said, well, we can't tell you either way. Now, that's not the same as not doing something, Richard. We frankly don't know if they did or not, but the evidence is overwhelming. They have not. And because we believe 95 to 99% that they simply have not, and that's why they wouldn't say whether they had, even though the federal law requires them to, mandatory, not discretionary but mandatory. Then we filed a mandamus action, and we filed that a few years ago, which is basically trying to get them to tell us um, just in, minis- in, in, in ministerial records. Not we're not we weren't going to be interfering with the grand jury. We just wanted to know if our petition and evidentiary exhibits had been delivered to a to a federal criminal uh, special criminal grand jury. And uh, we we argued Nick actually argued that case in oral arguments last year, and that was in August 5th, I believe. And then in December, um, no, right in August 5th, I in August 5th we we lost that case. Uh, They found against us, and so we appealed to the Supreme Court. And in December, the Supreme Court decided not to take up the case, just not to take it. So. We are now back to Plan B, which we are going to effectuate in, I would hope, the next week or 10 days at the most. And I don't know if Mick wants to talk about that.
6: Uh, Probably not tonight, but to get to Richard's question, um, in, in researching the case law on this, the reason we lost wasn't because the U.S. attorney did not have the statutory duty that we alleged. The courts recognized the duty. But they just – the U.S. attorney thumbed their nose at the duty, and what the court said was we did not have standing to enforce the duty even though the duty exists. However, hang on, hang on,
0: Hang on, hang on. on. Let me interject. That's the biggest nugget in this Texas judge decision where he allowed standing for people who should have been nowhere near a courtroom, and he just arbitrarily said, okay, you guys are it and and technically it's like a bunch of doctors who claim in this suit that at some point in the future some woman taking this drug will have an adverse effect and this doctor will have to deal with her and it will cause yeah. great pain and I understand. suffering I your point. and but it, there's nowhere that that's close to standing so is this not another example of where the judiciary is collapsing into a some kind of uh, you know, uh, uh, substellar, uh, you know, singularity, as opposed to doing <laughs> going back to the the Southern District, where by law they had to take the case and they didn't.
6: Okay, so first of all, double standards such as you point out, where courts are using different standards in different cases for the same principle, inconsistently, is a sign of distress or stress in the judicial system. And, you know, that needs to be remedied. But to answer an important question you ask, one of the cases I read gave me the impression that even – I think it was the D.C. Circuit, the Federal uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit said that even if no one had standing to enforce the duty on the U.S. attorney to report crimes to grand juries reported by citizens, even if no citizen had, that Congress might still have it that it would would be left to Congress to deal with. Now, I would be shocked and amazed, although I have been shocked and amazed from time (laughs) to time over the last 30 years. But I would be shocked and amazed if a congressional committee relayed a request to a U.S. attorney to to submit evidence regarding a Supreme Court justice to a special grand jury. I would be surprised if the U.S. attorney did not do that. Because, one, they have a mandatory duty under a statute. Two, it's Congress requesting it, and Congress has more power than we do to deal with a U.S. attorney thumbing their nose at a federal statutory duty. So I think there's probably a a way for Congress to do that.
0: So if a congressional committee in, in in the Senate, the Judiciary Committee, wanted Clarence Thomas to appear as part of an inquiry, a hearing into this and many other instances of not compliance with current law and the credibility of the court, you're saying that there is a potential legal remedy of the committee going to the Justice Department and getting a subpoena.
6: Well, you're not. Uh, no, it's, it's two different things. There are two remedies available to Congress that I'm aware of. There might be a third that I have not researched. The two I'm aware of is... Referring the matter to a U.S. attorney to give to a grand jury, in which case the grand jury would be doing the investigation, not the Congress. I see. But the second second remedy is for Congress to bite the bullet and initiate an impeachment inquiry, at which point they would have authority to subpoena the – in my view, the person being investigated for impeachment.
0: Am I correct in my misapprehension – how do you like that for convolution? <clears throat> that, Im- that impeachments can only begin in the House but not – That in the is Senate. true. So with that a Republican House, the odds of getting impeachment against Thomas are like you know I could make more money going to Vegas with these odds. Uh, and I wasn't
6: telling you about the odds. I was telling you about the procedure and understand, the authority. I understand, understand, yes. But you raise a, a practical question, what are the chances of it happening? If, if the Congress was acting objectively, impartially on the impeachment question, your observation about who controls the House should not matter, and it would not matter. His, recent history is telling us it does matter, mm-hmm. and that's a problem, and it's also a problem in some decisions in the Supreme Court.
0: Which is why I think along with the Dominion suit, the ultimate objective of those who want justice in this very complicated, you know, field, i would almost say that the congressional route of getting a hearing to lay out the parameters in the court of public opinion is really where short-term benefits could be accrued because most people don't know this is going on, they have no idea of the details, but if they if and when they do, they're not going to be happy And it's that political pressure which will force the court to begin to take care of its own shop.
6: That could be, and I do believe the Senate Judiciary Committee would have jurisdiction to begin an investigation of potential corruption of a judge or justice. Whether that would include subpoenaing the justice is a separate question, but they could hold a hearing, and – and that hearing might disclose facts which might lead to the sort of public pressure you're describing.
5: Hmm. Robert, I say in defense?
0: I was just what? I was just going to say, Robert, I'm going to come to you because you have three interesting questions regarding the assassinations: JFK, MLK, and uh, uh, I don't know yeah. who the third First, one was. The, yeah,
5: the Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy, of course. Right. So let me let me say this in defense of let me say this in defense of the black guy. You are uh, inferring uh, corruption. I'm implying, not inferring. Okay, okay, implying. I'm implying
0: very forthrightly there is corruption.
5: Okay. There's a term quid pro quo. You have found the quid, but you have not given the pro quo. Because there's been no
0: investigation uh, yet.
5: uh, Well, you know, well, then you're... Guilty of We want a
0: legal process because there is is enough evidence for an indictment, but not for conviction. Otherwise, nobody
5: would ever be indicted. I don't think there's any evidence for indictment of uh, uh, Judge Thomas. I think that's fatuous. But let me go on to the more important question. This thing was about the First Amendment. Okay. The primary motivation – in the assassination of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Robert Kennedy was to deprive them of their First Amendment rights. John F. Kennedy was killed to stop him from speaking at one o'clock at the Dallas trademark to deliver a speech that would have changed the history of the whole world. The second, Martin Luther King was assassinated to stop him from speaking in Memphis regarding the, the strike Of the um, what do you call it? Department of Sanitation.
0: Yeah, the the sanitation
5: workers, two of whom had been
0: killed because of practices of the sanitation department. Yeah, right. Because the
5: Ku Klux Klan, which was part and parcel of the Democrat Party, still controlled Memphis, and the Dixie Mafia, hand in glove with the FBI, murdered Martin Luther King. I wish you could have Dr. William Pepper on the show to discuss it. I've been on the air with him, and I helped him with the trial. And James Earl Ray, we succeeded in getting him a civil trial in 1999 in Memphis, and he was cleared, exonerated by a civil court, a jury of his peers, 12 people in Memphis cleared James Earl Ray of assassinating Martin. Well,
0: that sounds like a very Uh, worthwhile program. So yeah, let's behind the scenes set up something. Okay, moving on. Moving
5: on. Let's go to Kennedy. They killed Robert Kennedy to deprive him of his First Amendment rights to speak to the nation as presidential candidate after he had won the California primary. He was on his way to the White House and the CIA and the FBI, just as they had done in John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King worked using an MK Ultra stooge and framing him, Sirhan Sirhan, Sirhan Sirhan did not kill Robert Kennedy Robert Kennedy was killed by the security guard that was holding him by the left arm brought the gun over his head and put the gun behind his ear and that is the proof is Thomas Naguchi, the um, wasn't he the medical man, examiner? the medical examiner of uh, Los Angeles who did the autopsy said there were powder burns in the back of Robert Kennedy's head and the gun could not have been farther away mm. than one and a half to two inches. Well, didn't
0: they skin. find that there were bullet holes all over that damn kitchen?
5: Or that, that uh, Yes, it's corridor? Yes. That was because Sir Hans Sahan Sir Han fired he, he shots from eight feet away. And he was jumped and he was firing. He hit the ceiling, hit the walls, hit the floor, hit two people. But he did not hit Robert Kennedy. And, <clears> and, Robert Kennedy and you found a, like a
0: remarkable image of a bow tie on
5: the no, floor. No, a clip-on, a clip-on. Clip okay. Richard, you have... Good memory, yes, Robert Kennedy fought for his life when he felt Thane Caesar grab his arm really tightly to restrain him. While his other arm was being held by the manager of the hotel, both of them leading him, holding him by both arms, Robert Kennedy reached out with his right arm and grabbed Thane Caesar by the throat. And he grabbed him and fought him to the ground, and he ripped the tie off. And he clutched that tie to his chest until he was surrounded by medical a nurse, a, a Filipino nurse, a male nurse came to his aid. And um, Wasn't there also a football out? player? Oh, that, yes, um, Rosie Greer. Yeah. Rosie Greer jumped on, on Sir Han uh, instantly, and that's where the firing was going wild, and he hit two people. But Robert Kennedy clutched that tie. He laid it out. When he knew he was safe, he laid it out on the ground. And there's a photograph of it, and then it disappeared. Well, Time Magazine published the photograph on on time. In, uh, excuse me, Time Life. They published it on the cover of Life magazine, but they covered it up with a menu, a page so and so, page so and so, for this and for that. And that photograph, I knew it existed, and I looked for that photograph for 50 years. It finally showed up. But most importantly. On the anniversary of Robert Kennedy's assassination, the 50th anniversary of the Je- Robert Kennedy's assassination, the Washington Post, for one edition, online edition, published a picture of the dying Robert Kennedy on the ground, surrounded by the legs of the reporter, and between the legs of the reporter is That's a cop's, cop's hat and a hand reaching for it. The criminal always returns to the scene of the crime. So when he wrestled, Robert Kennedy wrestled St. Caesar to the ground, his hat fell off. Then he took off. And then when he saw the hat on the ground, he came back and some photographer snapped that picture and that hand is reaching for the hat. I fortunately took a picture off my screen because the very next day, the Washington Post removed that picture from circulation. But seeing it once was all I needed to see. Thank you very much for letting me me have that say. The assassinations of John, Robert, and Martin were intentionally designed to deprive them of their First Amendment rights and to stop specifically President Kennedy from delivering his speech at the Dallas Trademark at one o'clock that afternoon. Thank you.
0: Hmm. Okay, we got about five minutes to the bottom of the hour. Uh, Georgia Lambert, you have been waiting patiently in the wings. I'd like to bring you on now because I wanna kick the conversation up to a higher level. From my you know, analysis, big picture of what's going on, and has been going on for the last <clears throat> seven, eight, nine years, it seems to me that the political 3D process that we undergo every 2 years has been more and more raised to the level not just of of uh, you know ordinary 3d affairs government you know food clothing apportionment of resources taxes all the usual stuff but it exists now as a kind of a substitute for a moral clarity that used to be entered into the conversation by the church Or churches, by philosophers, by people who are looking at the big picture, it now seems that we're almost going through a series of morality plays at the level of the law and we're finding that they're very poor substitutes for a higher level morality in terms of how to live a good life in this 3D existence.
8: Well, good evening, Richard, um, and everybody. Um, I'm not sure what I can add, but I will give it a go. (laughs) You know, um, we've talked before about the changing of an age, and everybody agrees that we're in that period, whether they call it, you know, the age of Pisces to Aquarius or sixth ray to seventh ray or whatever, whatever it's called. Everybody knows that something is shifting. And in metaphysical tradition, at the beginning of each age, there is something that the Hindus call the rain cloud of knowable things. Wow. That that overshadows humanity.
0: That's a heck of a title.
8: (laughs) This isn't a great title. And that contained within this rain cloud of knowable things are the spiritual possibilities and directions uh, that are afforded to humanity if humanity chooses to take them. Uh, For instance, in the last age, at the golden age of Greece, we had a sort of, at least in the West, a download of particular directions uh, from the ancient Greek schools, the way to approach mathematics, the way to approach the arts, the way to approach politics, The way to approach music, dance. It could be said that our whole civilization in the West has been variations on themes that were laid down by the Greeks. Well, we're now in this period where there's a new rain cloud of knowable things, and we're in this period of testing to see which forms that humanity has created are going to be flexible enough and in alignment with divine law enough to be carried over into this next stage or which of these forms are going to just crash and burn because it's their time. So we're in a, a, a testing stage, a period of choice, testing whether our institutions and norms um, – that we choose uh, conform to ideals of mind and crafted law and universal law or they're going to be based on the emotional tides of masses and ruled by the verities of that mass and its tides.
0: Hmm. Okay, we are at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning... Too numerous to mention. That was Georgia Lambert, who's our resident metaphysician there. You're on the other side of midnight. One last half hour to go on this Sunday night, Monday morning, April 16th, grading into April 17th.
1: Massachusetts.
0: We shall return.
1: John Adams. Rhode Island. Mr. Stephen Hopkins.
6: Connecticut, Mr. Roger Sherman.
1: New York, Mr. Lewis Morris. New Jersey, the Reverend John Witherspoon.
6: Pennsylvania, Doctor Benjamin
1: Franklin. Delaware, Mr. Caesar Rodney.
6: Maryland, Mr. Samuel Chase.
1: Mr. Thomas Jefferson. North Carolina, Mr. Joseph Hughes. South Carolina, Mr. Edward Rutley.
3: Georgia, Dr. Lyman Hall.
7: on the side of Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. I say, John, give
4: up the fight.
3: Still to England I say, good night forever,
0: good night. And welcome back, everyone, on this last half hour on the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, Monday morning, stirring music from 1776, and here we are in 2023, just a whisker away from 247 years of this experiment. Okay, it's kind of open season or a free-for-all or a uh, very elegant conversation in this Last uh, little less than half hour, Georgia. I think you have something else that you wanted to add to the conversation.
8: Yeah, I just wanted to uh, follow up with a couple of points. I was talking about this period of testing and choice, and as per se the, Constitu- uh, the, uh, the conversation tonight about the Constitution. Um, I think at least what I see in the in the mass these days is a lot of people confuse the word freedom with license okay and and the idea that freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom from the responsibility from the effects of that. and you know again we're in this period where we have the the chance to correct a lot of stuff that's gone off the rails. The old idea, you can't fix what can't be seen. So we're in a period where a lot of the dredge is coming up to the surface in all kinds of different ways and all these inquisition lawsuits and and uh, activities. The, the one thing that I I think about it is it's really a good thing that all of this dredge is coming to the surface so that it can be seen and cleansed and dealt with. But in looking at the Dominion uh, case, which was the topic tonight, don't you all find it sad that it's not morality or ethics that determines responsibility and behavior? It's the loss of money,
0: well that's where I was kind of going because that's been the supplantation of the morality of a different era. Marvin you've talked about how the founders over and above everything else valued the idea of a man or woman elected to public service who had character. That the founders felt that if the if the uh, uh, you know servants of the people in future generations did not have that Ill-leg- ill-legislatable, you know, imponderable character that no amount of laws would save the republic. Am I overstating that?
1: Oh, no. That is right on a target. And if you will allow me, I have to read this passage. It is by Alexander Hamilton from number 71 of the Federalist Papers, and it touches on just this. The Republican principle demands that the deliberate sense of the community should govern the conduct of those to whom they entrust the management of their affairs, but it does not require an unqualified complaisance to every sudden breeze of passion or to every transient impulse, which the people may receive from the arts of men who flatter their prejudices to betray their interests. It is a just observation That the people commonly intend the public good. This often applies to their very errors. But their good sense would despise the adulator who should pretend that they always reason right about the means of promoting it. They know from experience that they sometimes err. And the wonder is that they so seldom err as they do, beset as they continually are by the wiles of parasites and sycophants, by the snares of the ambitious, the avaricious, the desperate, by the artifices of men who possess their confidence more than they deserve it, and of those who seek to possess it rather than to deserve it. When Marvin, occasion, could you occasionally that into English for us, please <laughs> Marvin yeah, yes, it is that public servants owe oh, the 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 uh, uh people their a uh, uh, judgment if, say that there was this uh, character that's somebody a long time ago had uh, of making fun of a member of Congress. And he he said, Congressman, uh, uh, breezeway goes wherever the wind blows. Well, for the, for the uh, framers at a certain point, a leader has to stand up. In fact, the very next sentence uh, uh, makes the point. When occasions present themselves in which the interests of the people are at variance with their inclinations, it is the duty of the persons whom they have appointed to be the guardians of those interests to withstand the temporary delusion in order to give them time and opportunity for more cool and sedate reflection. That's, uh, that, at least for me, that sums up the, the uh, role of a leader in a republic instead of all this namby-pamby pussyfooting that we have going on uh, uh, now.
0: An area that we haven't gotten into, Barbara, and I wanted to particularly because of uh, you and Georgia being on the panel, is this bizarre Texas ruling, which every legal – Scholar and lawyer and pundit that I've been able to track down says is out of cuckoo land that allows essentially one judge to decide for 330 plus million people the science behind an executive branch agency, the FDA, for millions, countless millions of women, all on the basis of an arbitrary decision having if you look at the ruling, no background in any recognizable science. How- right. But, but Go ahead. That's
2: not, that doesn't have to do just with this case. It's an unfortunate situation that until it's undone, and I'm not sure who undoes it, probably an act of Congress, but the Congress is so polarized they can't act. And that is that it's it's not only this judge, but as I recall, it wasn't too long ago that there was a Democratic judge uh, a district judge. I, this was a district judge, I believe. right? Yep, yep. He was a pretty low-level Democratic judge. Well, oh, it's the first level was, of
0: federal appointment, yeah, for, for the judiciary. Yeah, federal
2: appointment, right? But it was a. Uh, it wasn't too long ago, as I recall, that there was a, a Democratic judge at about the same or the uh, level in a different jurisdiction, uh, who who made a ruling that uh, he declared. Applied across the entire United States, as I recall, about about um, you know the border and uh, immigration.
0: So- it's the same. No, no. This was a this was the same judge who who uh, who ruled on uh, I believe President Obama's immigration executive order and ruled it unconstitutional. No,
2: I'm not talking about that. I wish I could recall the specifics, but I'm referring to a case of a, demo- of a Democratic appointed judge who did the same thing in the direction of the progressives. Okay. okay? The problem is, is that these low-level judges are given this authority at all, any of them, not just this one judge in Texas. The problem is, is that... The, the problem with the judge in Texas, the good news is, is that he was partially overruled by the Supreme Court um, or the appeals court in Texas itself.
0: So, uh, And now it's going to be decided before Wednesday by the Supreme Court.
2: The Supreme Court or the Supreme Court of Texas?
0: No, the Supreme Court of the United States of America. It was, it was Judge Alito who announced that uh, last night or two nights ago.
5: Uh-oh. That's right. That's right. The Supreme Court on Friday uh, overruled that uh, judge in Texas, and uh, they're going to hear it. So they have a temporary injunction on his ruling, and the bill is available for the next five days until the final judgment is made by the Supreme Court.
2: Well, I believe the Supreme Court is just being asked, correct me if I'm wrong, but from my reading, they're just being asked to decide – whether the the first of the two so-called abortion pills, I don't think of them that way. I think of them as medical freedom pills.
0: Yeah, but nevertheless,
2: never Yes, um, but I think the Supreme Court is going to be ruling on whether, while the case winds its way, the actual case winds its way probably
0: up to the Supreme what, Court. What 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 they call the on is, what what they call on the
5: merits? Yeah. Well, this sentence here just uh, clarifies everything. The temporary block will preserve the status quo access to Miss F- Ms. <laughs> for five days or until midnight on Wednesday, giving the high court time to review emergency appeals and consider issuing a longer stay on the ruling. The freeze is the latest turn in a fast-moving, high-stakes case over not only access to the safe and effective abortion medication, but also to the fate. Of the Food and Drug Administration's overall authority. Exactly, because if this this ruling is allowed to stand,
0: it means Mm -hmm. that any judge anywhere can basically throw 20 years of science into the trash can. The FDA is is not supposed to under the system, under judicial ruling, if it goes this way able to adjudicate between various drugs. It could be anything. It could be Viagra. It could be aspirin. It could be
2: COVID COVID vaccine. And it it
0: throws it into a, it throws it into total chaos. And the question I have. You
2: need to understand, you need to understand that the Republicans want to remove this discretionary authority from Uh, from these uh, executive agencies like the FDA and give it back entirely to the Congress. They've said so.
0: Well, wasn't it Bannon, and I forget who he was with, who basically said our objective is the deconstruction of the administrative state, which is exactly what this is aimed at. And that's why this court ruling, again, like the First Amendment case, like Fox and all that, this is a non-trivial ruling affecting every aspect of life by everyone in the united states because every drug is now up for grabs if the ruling that's
2: their their ultimate goal is to deconstruct or eliminate the so-called executive branch administrative state and return all these decisions to the to the so-called democratic branch which is the congress and the state legislatures that's what they want because these people they call themselves the new federalists what they want to do basically is to go back to the united states prior to the the Civil War. I mean, they're very explicit about that. I was told that in words in the West Wing of the Reagan White House Mm -hmm. by these so-called new federalists. Ed Meese is the ultimate new federalist. (laughs) He is, in my opinion, he's on the wrong side of history. He is the spider in the middle of the web of trying to do this. But if I just like – I just appreciate being able to – Finish what, what,
0: I was what, 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 what was Mises position under Reagan? Was he attorney general?
2: He, he was originally, when we first got in the White House, he was the counselor to the president. He was the president's chief legal advisor in the White House. And then in the second term, he was attorney general. Ah, Okay. 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 But, but allow me to, to say what I was trying to say uh, earlier. And that is, it's going to the Supreme Court. But my understanding is... That all of these courts, now all the way to the Supreme Court, the decision that's being made there is simply whether or not to remove this first of the two pills from availability pending the underlying court case going all the way back up through the court system. Right so it's it's a question of whether there is a uh you know whether it's available or not while these warring rulings there was a judge in in, in
0: Washington Senate state who who basically said don't you dare not provide it to women in seventeen states correct,
2: and those are the seventeen states by the way that were' the plaintiffs, the attorney generals in the case, so there are actually warring. Um, that will win their way to the Supreme Court that are on opposite sides of the whole question. So, you know, the the bottom line here, the big picture I see, is that when the Dobbs decision came down, the right wing wanted you to believe that they simply were new federalists, that's what they call themselves, they wanted to return the decision about reproductive health care and who decides to the state, to the state legislatures. Well, my position is they don't belong in the state legislatures at all. They they belong with a woman and her doctor.
0: How period. can you legislate or, or adjudicate a right? The Supreme Court took away a they right for the removed
8: first that time, time point, ever. Well, this, this is bringing up something that I've, I've heard only a, a few people talk about, and that's bringing up another uh, tenant of uh, – of our constitution, and that's the separation of church and state. Oh. There's this war of, of of us of those that would see this country as a theocracy and and imposing their religious views on life and everything else on people that may be of a completely different religion. And yes, the question absolutely. is, do we do we let that stand or not?
2: Well, you absolutely. And I'm here to tell you that when I was In the Reagan administration, uh, Ed Meese uh, was invited. It was either when he actually, it was either when he was Attorney General, when I was in the Justice Department, or when he was still the Chief Attorney, the Chief Counselor to Reagan inside the White House, President Reagan. But Ed Meese uh, is the worst offender for this uh, for this this idea that. America is a Christian nation. America is not a Christian nation. The, the Constitution of the United States itself states, there shall never be a religious test for any office of public trust under these United States or any of the states, <laughs> period. Okay. The United States is not a religious nation. And the First Amendment makes it clear you can't have establishment of any religion. So so this whole enterprise by Ed uh spearheaded by Ed Meese, the spider in the middle of the web, I call him. They want to eliminate the the entire wall between church and state because they want to create a theocracy. And I'm telling you that when he was either attorney general or the chief uh, advisor, legal advisor to President Reagan in the White House, that he was invited, Ed Meese was, to give the keynote address to the American Bar Association that was then meeting in Washington, D.C. I attended that meeting, and his address is online. You can read it and in this address he actually states that their goal the so-called new federalism goal of returning all power to the states except for the only thing they wanted left in the federal government was the military the police and the courts nothing else no medicare no education department you know nothing nothing no sda nothing zero and he actually said in this address the keynote address to the American Bar Association, and he used the example of Utah, which then was still majority, uh, still majority uh, Mormon. He said that the state of Utah, that our goal someday, if we succeed, is for the state of Utah to be able to outlaw any other religion but Mormonism, oh to my outlaw God. any newspaper but a Mormon newspaper, and he went on and on. This is their goal.
5: Yeah. I'd like to make a personal statement on abortion Well hang on I want to everybody everybody, to
0: have a kind of a minute and a half To say something So Robert you start
5: Okay On a personal level I am against abortion But I believe it's a woman's right to choose To do what she, what she pleases Or what she thinks is right Or what she thinks is wrong with her body Secondly I think the FDA is one of the most corrupt organizations Or departments in all of Washington It is wholly owned by Big Pharma and specifically Pfizer, almost every director of the FDA over the last ten years has been previously an employer of Pfizer. So I agree with you. They, they did the world a great disservice during the COVID pandemic because they they banned hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, which are proven to be effective as therapies and as prophylactics. So. Goodbye, FDA. We don't need you, and we
2: don't need Dr. Fauci. Thank yeah, you. The real, the uh, real, the may,
0: may I say something? Okay, about, I'm, 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 uh, Marvin is next. Barbara, please. Marvin, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I, I just wanted to uh, make a comment about freedom of religion. Uh, this is by a gentleman who may know a little bit something about the subject. His name was James Madison. The purpose of separation of church and state is to keep forever from these shores the ceaseless strife that has soaked the soil of Europe in blood for centuries. Religious wars, in other words.
2: Right, and they were inter Christian wars, by the way. They Mm -hmm. were within Christianity.
0: Yep, yep, yep. Well, the okay, Muslims so versus think, the yeah, Christians.
2: No, no, it's not okay, hang on,
0: guys. Let's let's be a little ordered here. We have got a few minutes left. Uh, let's see, uh, Barbara, you're on.
2: Yeah, I just I just want to close with another big picture, and that is the, the all of the all of these questions. Every single one of them come down come down to, at what level of society is our decisions made about what? It's that simple. So there's a war going on between the right wing, who would like to move a lot of these decisions into the state legislatures, and then there there is a progressive wing, that wants to reform the federal government to clean it up, hopefully, and believes that there are legitimate uh, powers uh, of the federal government that should not be devolved to the states. So. But there are, there are fundamental, the question, the other question is what are the fundamental rights that are inherent in every citizen of the United States? And I maintain that one of those, the most fundamental one of all is medical freedom. And that the most fundamental right of medical freedom is the right not to be pregnant against your will.
4: Mm.
2: If you are pregnant, you are not an individual and the, the entire legal and moral system of the United States that makes us unique is the focus on individual rights. So that's my case.
0: Makes this time kind of special, wouldn't you think? Mick, mm-hmm. you're up next.
6: Thoughts? Well, just a, a bigger picture thought in terms of this recent decision, and it's going up to the Supreme Court. There are times when a federal judge appropriately makes a decision uh, that Declares a federal agency conduct illegal, either unconstitutional or contrary to statute, perhaps arbitrary. When that happens, if the court had jurisdiction on the question in the first place, then the injunction will probably be enforced nationwide until a court of appeals reverses it or the Supreme Court. That's not uncommon, and it's not per se incorrect. Uh, However, in some areas, such as FDA or other federal agency regulations, it may not be within the jurisdiction of a federal district court to make certain types of decisions that can only be made by, for example, doing an appeal of a federal register notice of a promulgated regulation, in which case the court shouldn't be making the decision at all. And then, of course, there's bigger picture questions of constitutional rights of individuals, and every federal court should be respecting those rights at whatever level. And my last big picture point is, uh, you know, there's a pattern across the number of things we've been talking about. There's certain entities in this country are not respecting the existing law, including constitutional rights, but also statutory rights, separation of powers. What they're basically doing is politicizing all branches and basically trying to achieve whatever they can get by with for their specific purposes. It's sort of a might-makes-right mentality, and if it's allowed to succeed, we will not have you know, a rule of law. And the question is, what will we be left with at that point?
0: What's interesting to me, everyone, and I'm, I want to really thank everyone for their participation. <clears throat> this has been a really good substantive conversation. I want to congratulate everybody because sometimes you can get a little, you know, hot under the collar in some of these discussions. It seems to me that there is a revolution going on at the grassroots at the state legislature. Look at Michigan. Look at what happened in Wisconsin. I I think there are counter forces, which leads me to Georgia. Georgia, I think we're involved in a very high-level war for the hearts and minds and souls of free people in three dimensions, and the battleground is the United States of America.
8: Uh, Not just the United States, but of course that's foremost in our view right now. And I'd I'd just like to close with... You know, um, in World War II, we talk about the 6 million that were lost. During the Inquisition, there were 13 million women put to the stake just because they were women. And if these forces keep pushing against women, they're going to awaken, like the Japanese commander said at Pearl Harbor, they're going to awaken a sleeping tiger. Ninety seconds.
0: <laughs> yep. Okay, I want to thank everybody. This has been a very interesting conversation. As I said, the Fox trial begins on Tuesday now, and I have a feeling it's going to open with a bang, and it's not going to close through uh, concession of either side. And uh, I, I wish I'd bet Mitch, uh, Mick something, because I, I could use something different right now for winning such a bet. I want to thank everyone for participation. Go to the website, see who tonight's panelists were, And until next week, same time, same bad channel, where we're going to be doing something really interesting in Utah again, and then maybe Elon Musk finally sends the starship into orbit this week, in which case one of those two days, Saturday or Sunday, we'll be looking at the future of a totally different understanding of the solar system. So until next week, same time, same bat channel. Remember, third star on the left. Straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.